All right, we're back on the Joe Cozo Show. I have a guest that I am honored to have on here. His name is Charlie Cifarelli. Charlie, how are you? I'm good. You know, a native of Long Island, correct? That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I love your story, right? It's a story that is a heartfelt that anyone who loves animals, which I do. I have two German Shepherds, and they are my life. So I know right away I can relate to this story. Tell us a little bit, just give us where you're from originally, just a little bit about yourself before we get, you know, before we get started. Uh, born in East Harlem, New York. Uh, from there we moved to Astoria, Queens. Made it to Westbury, Long Island, and then I did the majority of my growing up right in Merrick. So you originally, so when did you move from the city to Long Island? In the early 70s when I was, you know, just before I became a teenager. And, you know, some of the story, you know, I was looking at some of the videos that you have on YouTube and the stories of the dog star, which is, it's amazing that you rescued this dog and all everything that happened. But, you know, there's another story behind that story, you know, and that's how it usually works. And that's the story of your life. You know, I, I think what you've done by saving and rescuing the dog star is I mean, a movie could be made out of it. A children's book, which has been made, that yes. you've done. Everything, all of it, could be made out of it. But you yourself have your own journey. And without that journey, you would never have reached this, this, this part of getting star. So if you could, just tell us a little bit about your life, your growing up on Long Island. And you know, before we get into the, you know, the nuts and bolts of how you, you know, came across star. You know, I grew up on Long Island. I, um had a little bit of an unusual uh, experience because my father was a, a different cat. He was not a father that was really in my life, so I had to navigate through uh, school and everything with my own direction. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do early in life was become a New York City police officer. So uh, I wound up taking the test for that, and uh, I started the hiring process, and uh, I lost interest in that uh, because... Uh, it just was not rooted in my house to become a police officer. How old were you at this time? Oh, I took the test at, uh, I, I believe you can take the test back then at 17. I think I was in 11th or 12th grade at the time. So you took the test. When you say that your father wasn't in your life, what do you mean by that? Was he, did you, was your mother and father divor divorced or was it just that he wasn't present even though he was in the household? You know, he had a routine, but he was he was a street guy. My father was a guy that was in the Teamsters. He was in the, uh, concrete business and uh he's a guy in 1956 who was uh, arrested for uh the attempted murder of a new york city police officer when him and joseph and briglia better known from the french connection um and uh synthetic heroin ring he had in the 80s that the fbi was looking for him my father was wrapped up with these guys and uh his mind was always in the streets and i was anything that i brought to him was an inconvenience you know it's 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 odd that you say that because you would think an Italian guy, right? I know you're Italian. Yeah. I could see, and, and and your father must have been well connected. Sounds like he's connected in the mafia in some aspects. Yeah, he was just uh, he was connected. Uh, you know, it's from day one. He was the streets. My father. That's what he. Uh, his focus was on. What was it like when you found out that he was like? You know, what were you doing at the time? How old were you when? the cops or the FBI came and said, hey, listen, your dad's wanted for attempted murder. How did that all take place? Well, that happened before I was born. That happened in 56, so I didn't know any of this stuff, and he went away, and then, you know, he met my mother in 64, and we never knew this stuff about him. Um, 
it took there's no google there's no there, youtube there's no youtube there's no, but he had but he had specific jailhouse tattoos and i knew my father had a background and he said to me one time he goes look man i made the front page of the newspaper um and when i started to get in some trouble with the police he says you don't want to get caught up in the court system once they get your number you're never going to get out of it so uh, he had he had that ability to tell me this stuff but again uh, he was part of building Starrett City in the in the 60s and 70s with his block company out of Brooklyn. And uh, I went to that East New York as a young kid, and I saw such a terrible neighborhood with crime and violence and how those poor people that were citizens had to live in that uh, area. It was just really a bad, bad situation. So your father's not in your life at the time, so it sounds like you're just running, you know, and it's those times were different. You know, you're a little bit older than I am. But, you know, I remember just going out and being able to, you know, I would go out in the morning on a Saturday or a Sunday and I'd be gone all day long. Yes. Right. You know, and I didn't have and my upbringing is, is, is similar to yours. My father was, you know, a part of the household, but wasn't in my everyday life. He had his own routine similar to what you said. So I was gone. The only time I'd come back is when he would whistle and, you know, you have to come out back and eat with the family. Yes. The, even the the conversations at the dinner table were so minute and nothing really of importance, not too interested in my life and what I was doing. And as soon as I was done eating, I couldn't wait to get off the table, go right back outside and see you later. And then I wouldn't be home until it was time to go to bed. So it seems like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you're out there out on the street figuring out your own way. I am. Right? I am. So tell us a little bit about that, about growing up. And where was this, you said, on Long Island at the time? It was on Long Island, originally Westbury, and then from Westbury to uh, Merrick. Um, you know, the early years, I I'm trying to grow up, and you know, you're in the street, and you spend all your time in the street, and you know, the first few years, you're into baseball cards, you're into pro kid sneakers and Converse, you're into playing uh, stickball, handball, and life was good. Life was good. But as my parents and their relationship started to get turbulent, I started to become a problem, being around. When you say turbulent, was there a domestic dispute? Uh, or abuse, no, should I no, say? You know, my father My father wasn't like that, but he was a rageaholic man. He, you know, he made, he made the neighborhood in Westbury know who he was. He got mad one day, he took down a, a garage, he took down a tree for me to have a pool. It was really for him and his boys from Brooklyn, but my mother said, it's my pool, and I never went in a pool. And on a Saturday, he harpooned the pool with one of those old edges from the 70s where you... Are you talking about an above-ground pool? Above-ground pool, and he kept on edging it in the liner, and the water, 15,000 gallons of water, blew out the side of the pool. Oh, yeah, so he was one base. of those guys. He was one of those guys, and he had a volatile... He was a lean guy. He had a volatile temper. And, Did he ever uh, punch a hole in the wall, like in the house? Oh, he... Not only that, he... My fault was big on that. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a volatile man... And it went. There was no middle ground. You didn't even know what's coming. When it came, it came like a tornado. It's it's crazy, you know, when you hear stuff like that, and even the hole in the wall. I always sat, sat there, like we'd be at the dinner table, and the next thing you know, something I said pisses him off. He gets up, and you don't even realize it's in a like that. Yeah. Gets up and puts a hole in the wall, and I sit there and think about that now, like. I, I wouldn't even risk, because I don't even know where the beams are, the two by fours, <laughs> got the bit, I hit a solid thing, I break my hand, yeah. but him, it went right through. Yes, yes. And it, it was crazy growing up, and you know, you don't see that these days, really. No, With no. kids and how they, and how parents are with their children. So, so tell us a little bit about your teenage life then. So you are out in the street, 
right out in the street. And uh, at this point, you know, I'm trying to navigate towards towards anything that's healthy. And you know, everything's a no with my father. But he also doesn't give me any yeses. He says to me, "Look, you know, don't waste my money and your time. You're not college material. So let's get that off the table." He goes, "Get yourself a job." Uh, you know, a con ed or something that uh, pay your benefits and this and that. I mean, he already marginalized my ability in this life. You know, at the time, there were guys that I was growing up with that were going to work for Lehman Brothers. They were doing things. They were shakers and bakers. That has an effect on you. Yeah. You know, you and your father saying, listen, just be this and be that. And you're sitting there probably, you know, saying to yourself, hey, I, I, I may want to do other things, but my father is limiting me to this. He's limiting to me to this. And the thing was, but the thing is that I harbored was the ability, to, I wanted to become a New York City cop. I really, I wanted to be. I mean, back in the day when I was young, Serpico was the hero, man. I mean, he was the hero cop, and you wanted to be like him. There were, there were shows uh, like Columbo. Uh, you know, he was an odd cat, but he always got the criminals. Uh, there was Beretta. Who didn't watch Beretta in the 70s? I mean, when you saw Beretta, and that 66 Impala, man, making the deals, cutting a $20 bill or $100 bill in half to get information. It inspired me to want to do something and be able to change the world in my small part of the world. So that's what I wanted to do. And I went out and took the test and I started the hiring process. And I was a squeaky clean kid as far as drugs, as far as anything when I was a young kid, uh, I knew what I wanted to do when I was a weightlifter and I had a vision and I parented myself. I, you don't hear many kids say this. I parented myself, but my parents didn't have the regard that they have today for kids. If my mother and father want to get in an argument, they throw me out of the house. I got thrown out as early as eight years old. I was walking to Roosevelt Field at eight years old. Um, I got thrown out in the summer when I was 12 years old. I was sleeping at back of this Lakeside High School, Lakeside Elementary School in the tunnels. And this went on and on. And unfortunately for me, I had some cousins that, you know, one cousin was, was a straight shooter and the other cousin wasn't. And, you know, uh, the dark force will always find you. I always feel that. I, I, the dark force will find you or the good force will find you. So here you are, though. You take the test. Yes. How did you, so you're prepping for it, right? Yes. You took the physical as, as well? Well, no, Joe, I took the written test and did really well. There's three bands. I got jumped into band number one, so I take the test. Oh, so you, you did really I did excel. really. I excel because I have a memory that's unbelievable. And before there was Jeopardy, I already, before there was Google, I always liked information. So you were always on it. So you know what? You probably analyze a lot of things, I too. Analyze. You probably have that. I can yeah. tell right away. Once you say that, that's it. You're an analyzer. I'm an analyzer. So so why, so why? what happened then? So now I take the test. I go take the physical. And I excel at that, too. I mean, back then, I had this big, heavy dummy. You had to pull around a figure eight. And I'm excelling. And then the next thing was the medical. I was in great shape. I, I, I ran my mouth. And my father killed my dream. My father killed my dream. What do you mean, run your mouth? What does that mean? I, I said, I'm going to become a New York City cop. I'm going to become a New York City cop. And that was so against what he wanted me to do. And on top of that, he did show me a side of the New York City police that wasn't healthy. When I was a young kid, I remember him paying off the officers uh, so his trucks could double park so that the, they could drop off these concrete blocks. I mean, I saw, as a kid, money going from my father's hands to the NYPD. And my father said, the street cop don't get to keep that. He's got to bring it to the captain. 
And, you know, you see that as a kid and you wonder, is my father possibly right here? Is there something right here? He goes, kid, man, you got to pay big to do business in this city. And that would happen. And then there was another time that my father had a whole bunch of stuff in the front seat of his car. And this is East New York. And the, and the car door was left open and it was all taken. And my father said, I'm just them damn cops. So there was always a good and bad with my father with the police. So he's telling me this. I got my own vision of Beretta. I got my own vision of going out and doing the right thing in Serpico. And I got that. Eventually, I don't follow through with the testing procedure. And my life takes a, a nosedive, a real bad nosedive. You'll explain. What do you, when you talk about a nosedive, sounds like there must have been some drugs involved. Right. Well, what happened? Something. So, I mean, what is a nosedive? Well, what it, what it is at the time is I'm, I'm a strong, strappy kid. I was one of the youngest guys to bounce at, at Malibu. You had to be 18 years old. You know, Malibu, Nassau County. In Nassau County. So, <laughs> I've been there plenty of times. So, so, so I've been there many of times. So here's the crazy. Uh, so I, I can already see what's happening here. You also <laughs> love vagina. Yeah. Well, you, you, who, who's going to say no? Yeah. I mean, at this, at of this course. Point. So. I'm bouncing at, at, at Malibu, and I'm in the 12th grade. You're bouncing? I'm bouncing. Oh. I'm bouncing, at and I'm in the 12th grade, okay? And here's how this thing starts to work. When, you, when you're a new bouncer or a new correctional officer, they don't give you the best details. So they give me the worst detail to be by the bathroom. Which is a lot of lot of work, man. You're is working. it by the girls' bathroom? No, the guys' bathroom. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you so you're spending half your time, you know, throwing guys out that are sniffing blow. You know, you and I'm 18 years old and I'm still going to school because I gotta tell you this, I get left back because I don't make the gym class because I'm busy bouncing. You got left back for gym class. I didn't, out I of got, all the things, I got I got, I got because you probably back. had so many absences. I, I went to school late every day. Make sure you uh, get closer here. You can yeah. push this towards you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, go ahead. So, so here you are, though, at 18 years old. You're saying that everybody's sniffing coke in and out of the bathrooms. Yeah. I mean, it's probably difficult, I would assume, to seeing other people doing it. Did you start doing that no, as well? No. What I did start doing is I started doing the shots of vodka. I, I, got, I got a real, real desire for these shots. Uh, back then, absolute on the you know that was the that was the drink or yeah there was no great goose back there then was no there was great no great goose yeah there was no then, uh, kettle one or anything no, absolute was the primo absolute was the primo I mean, this is a vintage show today yeah so we got absolute and then there was a big deal with the gin tangeray and tonic <laughs> so and I look the bartenders are making you drinks so I'm drinking fighting, drinking, but I'm going, and I'm trying to go to school the next day. I wound up getting left back. I wind up having to finish my um, senior year in 84 instead of 83. And at the same time, I'm a guy that scored band number one with the NYPD test, so something's not lining up here. No. So now I'm off, Joe. So now I'm off. So now I'm working at the club, and all I want to do is lift weights, eat, and go bounce. You juicing? Like no, you, not, you, no, no steroids no, or anything no, like that. No, no. I, I, I gotta tell you something. I got some decent genetics, and I'm, and I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is I'm eating. I got a hold of the Mike Mensa system back in the day. Um, I actually got a hold of Mike Mensa, and I was doing the heavy duty training uh, with limited days a week, but a lot of carbohydrates, and I was swelling, and the body. Uh, the body was responding to this. And we'll get to the juice in a second because it's worth talking about that in a minute here. Well, so talk to me, though, about, so here you are. You're working out. You're, you're getting wasted. Yeah. You're getting left back from school. Yeah. Is now the, is the test over? 
Is it done now? Is the deadline is expired? I don't respond. You don't even do it. You don't even go back. To I don't it. go back. I don't okay. go back. It's such as I don't go back. And now, what are my credentials now? I'm a bouncer. You shot taker. I'm a shot taker. Yeah. And now you're I'm lifting weights. And I'm and, and they're giving me more and more hours. And they're giving me more hours. So I'm working full time at Malibu. And, Long Beach, Long Island. And it's a big deal, man. It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. A lot of hot girls there, too. Uh, back, but you know what? The hot, the hot girls back then are different than the hot girls today. Yeah. Well, yeah. 100%. There were no filters back then. There was a lot of, I mean, yes. not that the girls today are not just as pretty or prettier, but it was a different time. Yeah. You know, and I think people gotten prettier as time has moved forward. I'm surprised that, so here you are, 18 years old, and there's so much drugs going on and everything yeah. at these places. I, you know, I saw it firsthand. You didn't do any drugs at all at that time? You know, I smoked some weed. I smoked some weed back then. I yeah. just I just No, but the next problem was gonna happen for me, but I wind up hurting my back with this lifting weights. Okay. Um and then I try to pick up a moving job and I get a Nassau County doctor. He's a podiatrist of all types of doctors. He winds up prescribing me some pain pills. Not a big deal. Just take these pills. I didn't think about it. And what year is this? This was in 85, 86. Okay. So I, I, you don't know, you know, you don't think much of it. So you're taking these pain pills. But the problem is you keep got having to take more and more and more. And you're building up a tolerance. And now, you know, here comes a little bit of oral steroids, you know. You know, you could take some steroids to fix the back. You could start to get healthier. Well, let me tell you something. Steroids didn't work for me. I got so mad one day in a McDonald's. I took a tray, a plastic tray, and flung it like a Frisbee and blew out the glass on the door. In McDonald's? In McDonald's. I threw a tray with such velocity. What pissed you off? I had an argument with, with, with I, we were a double date, we were going to the movies, and uh, we wound up at McDonald's eating because there was no time before the movies because this other guy was late. And I was so angry that here I am, they're telling me that I gotta have a clean diet, especially with this oral steroid I'm taking, and I'm eating McDonald's. And I, at some point, I decided I wasn't going to eat it, but I was pissed. I was hungry. And I flung the tray, the brown tray, like a Frisbee, with such velocity it blew out the glass door. And, you know, back then, you know, guys like Lyle Alzado were making the news. He was pulling guys out of the sunroof of cars and stuff. So I kind of knew this stuff could give you some rage, but I didn't know I had that much rage behind me. Are you talking about just because of the steroids? The steroids, that- the abuse of what I saw my father. Uh, you know, where my life was going, I didn't realize that if you don't unpack yourself, you know, back then there was no, there was no talking about stuff. There was no this or that. All my transgressions were inwards. I didn't talk about anything. anything. Did you start, did you start abusing the pain pills? Oh yeah, Joe. How could you not? Uh, they stopped working. I started adding to them and started adding to them. And then this doctor got popped. He got popped first Mm -hmm. for Medicaid fraud. And then he got his license back. Then he got popped for writing everybody pills. How bad was it for you? Like when you, so what would you, when he first started prescribing the pills, what was it, once every four hours? It was once every four hours. And before you know it, it's four every one hour. Because what happens is with pills is you forget you take them. You you know, you always, you're trying to figure out how many pills you took because you're taking, the bottle said 60. You're trying to do your arithmetic. How many did I take? How many are left in the bottle? And what day is it? Then you start. To and how am I feeling? And how am I feeling? Well, unfortunately for me, um, it was a bad deal. And eventually, uh, I the pills wiped me out so bad. How many were you taking a day at your peak? I, at my peak, 
from this doctor, I was taking 20, 30 pills a day. 30, 20, 30 pills? Oh, yeah. What kind of pills were they? Percocets. Wow. Yeah. You know, were you starting, I'm sure your moods were probably starting to swing as well, no? Like if you didn't get them, uh, if you didn't have them? You know, I, I, I didn't realize, again, I'm, I'm, I'm stupid to this, to the addiction, because now you got opioid crisis all over and people know. I think back in the 80s, they, they may have known, but they did not make that big of a deal of stuff. And then I think in Nassau County, they made stuff become a triple kit form where they made it harder. But this doctor wound up getting in trouble and then he went and I found another doctor. And at some point, Joe, all this stuff ended. The doctors couldn't write pills anymore. And I wound up in East New York uh, in a 7-5 precinct uh, pursuing drugs. And that's, that's hell on earth. What, what do you mean? So 7-5 and where infamous uh, Mike, Dowd. Mike Dowd worked and yeah. you know he was a guest here on the show. When you say that you were, next thing you know, in East New York at the 7-5, what, what do you mean? Like pursuing drugs? I don't understand. Well, when the avenues of drugs such as the prescriptions came to an end, I couldn't get them anymore. Um, I just went to where I knew pills were, where I knew there were people uh, with dope. I just went to where drugs were. And how did I know this? My father's block company was in the outskirts of East New York. So I had been there throughout my life. So you're saying that you knew cops were arresting people and they'd have the drugs on them and that's why you went there? I'm trying no, to, I, I don't no, see the, no, no. I don't see the connection. What's no, the connection? No, I knew the neighborhood. I knew the neighborhood because that's where my father's block company was. And I knew that the cops there didn't pay attention to people buying drugs like they would in Nassau County. Okay. See, my father always told me, don't do your shit in, in your backyard. And I knew not to be pursuing looking for drugs in my own neighborhood. Besides, I wouldn't even know where to get them in my own neighborhood. Back in the 80s, I mean, there were guys at the club that had some cocaine or this and that. I was looking for pain pills. I was looking for dope. How did you, so so what are you doing there? So are you like just driving around East New York and looking for certain drug dealers on the corner? Yes. Are you just going up and soliciting on your own to people? How, explain that. Well, being there since I've been a kid, going through the neighborhood, taking a ride from Merrick in my father's car to East New York to the block company, I knew where the spots were. I knew off of Linden Boulevard. I knew off of Sutter Avenue. And to make matters worse, Joe, around this time now, I wind up with a soda delivery route that goes to these neighborhoods. Uh, I know there's a lot to the story, but there was a startup company in the 80s in Nassau County called Jamaica Natural. And it was just a colorful, sugary drink that got sold in the inner cities uh, so you're you're working for them and delivering it. I'm delivering the soda to these bodegas or to Key Food or wherever they would get these soda deliveries accepted. And I was there already. So between my back, being in the neighborhood, knowing the neighborhood, and, you know, how will I get to know the 7-5 officers? Well, sooner or later, they'll start arresting me. Well, explain. How does that, like, what was the first arrest? Well, the first arrest was... Um, Is this how you met Mike Dowd? I met Mike Dowd years later, actually. I, I knew of him on the streets. I mean, he was infamous at the time. There was no if ands. I mean, this what guy do you, was like, what, what do you mean? Because I, I, I listen, yeah. I, I, and I, we said this, you know, before the show, we, before we started the interview, I personally love Mike Dowd. Right. You know, and he, he came on the show and he was honest as, you know, and you got to respect that. And he's had no qualms about admitting all the wrongdoings he did. But a lot of people don't like Mike Dowd. A lot of people, you know, frown upon him, and that's their business, whatever yes, it is. Yes. But I, I actually like Mike Dowd. 
what how did you when you say that he was infamous at the time and everybody knew what do you mean by that because I'm, I'm i'm oblivious to that i wasn't yeah. around that well this is vintage time in, in the 80s okay in the 80s i was in east new york on on three different three different reasons i was there because my father had business there i was there because i was pursuing drugs and i was there because i had a soda delivery route and i got accepted in that neighborhood like i was a local there was a guy, Anthony T. Santiago, had been shot five times, um, supposedly by an off-duty correctional officer, had a colostomy bag. He knew who my father was, and he knew that my father was a connected guy. And he took, took me in under his wing, and they kind of grandfathered me in this neighborhood. Mike has mentioned it on a, on a podcast recently on the Ryan Show. He worked for the bad guys. He worked for the bad guys. I knew the bad guys. So that's how you knew then Mike yeah. Dowd. What was, give me some of the arrests that, you know, that you were arrested for, some of the yeah, charges. It was, it was, it was simple um, arrest. Uh, I'd be picked up uh, for either having dope on me or having pills on me. Um, were you doing heroin too? Uh, I was sniffing dope. You were sniffing it? Yep, yeah. I was sniffing it. And uh, So you're bad at this time. Uh, at this time, I'm And how old bad. are you now? My early 20s. My early 20s. It's, it's a, I'm 22 years old in 1987. Um, I'm in the worst precinct in America. It's a dangerous, dangerous place. And I'm there, and I'm ashamed of my Long Island upbringing, and I'm ashamed of anybody seeing me. But the problem, Joe, is we got cops that are good cops, and that's important for people to know. No matter where the neighborhood is, you're still going to have those that follow rules. I do. And I, and I also think, though, there's in anywhere, in any shape or form, there's good cops and bad yes. cops. Right, it's human beings. Yes, you know that's what it is. You're they're human beings too. People don't realize that. So I that that's my opinion of it. Yes. So so, so what the problem was is the good cops, not that they noticed me. They grew up with me. There was a guy that grew up with me. He wound up dying in a in a, in a car accident. He wrestled. He was two years older than me. He was a clean cut guy. He'd say, Charlie, what are you doing here? I know what you're doing here, but I got away with it in the beginning. Because as an addict, I had to become an actor. There are some addicts that learn how to shoplift. There are other addicts that know how to do fraud. That was not my shtick. My shtick was I was an actor. And I would act like everything's okay. And because I acted like everything was okay, when the cops would pull up, what are you doing here? Well, I'm either delivering soda, or if that's not a day that I'm working, my father's block company is here. But eventually, they caught up with me. And one of the guys that's in the 7-5 documentary, Big Walter, I mean, he's a big, you, you don't miss him. I remember, I remember doing my research on it. Yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. He gets out of the van. He's a passenger in this van that pulls up. And everybody, the cops come out, and they shake me down. And they said to him I was clean. He says, let me see that newspaper, you. And he opens up the newspaper, and the dope's in there. And he says, get in the van. And that was the first time I got popped. <clears throat> and then it continued to happen more and more. But, you know, Joe, I was, I, was, I was a street guy. And, you know, if I had a gun on me and the cops were coming, I got to the precinct first for the amnesty. I would turn in the gun. It's an amnesty day. I'm turning in the gun. Or um, as I would get arrested, these guys, I had, a, I had a cousin that was on the job, and I don't want to mention her name, but she was... She excelled as a, as a woman back in the 80s to become a lieutenant, then a captain. I mean, I wouldn't say her name. But she also helped you out too. But they knew I had family. They knew I had family on the job. And it made a difference. So a lot of times they would, they would just have me sit in there, see if I had any warrants on me. 
and they cut me loose. But then life got worse because um, back in 1989, now I'm a few years older, I'm 23, 24 years old, uh, the New Leaf uh, formed Tactical Narcotics Task Force, TNT. And they were formed because uh, an officer in Jamaica was assassinated by the Pappy Mason and uh, Fat Cat Nichols uh, organization. And they created this Tactical Narcotics Task Force that went after everybody. And they were in the 7-5. And in the days of the cops passing you by, that wasn't the case. So eventually... Now they're stopping frisking. They're stopping and frisking, and now they're getting you. So I bought dope, and I decided I wasn't going to pull over for them. I said, the hell with it. I'm not going to pull over. And I sniffed dope as I'm doing 100 miles an hour. You were on the Bell Parkway? I was, I was in the neighborhood. I was on Linden. Oh, Linden. really? I was go- yeah. I was, I was, and they were following me, and it was building up on this. What were you driving? I, I was dry. I had a, I had an old 442. Okay. I had an old 442. <laughs> right, right. I had an old 442 with a, with a, with a big motor. But, uh, you know, and uh, I pulled over when I got done with the drugs. And that's what I did. So now you don't have any possession. Now I have no possession now. But um, I had more guns pulled on me than you could ever imagine. And um, the sergeant dragged me out of the car. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I was, I was a big guy. I didn't look like I was using drugs. I was 230 pounds. I mean, I had a big neck. I was, couldn't believe it. And he said to me, you know, what is going on? And I mean, he didn't like me from the, day, from, the, from the beginning, back and forth. And he asked, he goes, you got any family on the job? And I said, no. I said, no. So he made his personal business to make my life miserable. And I got back to the 7-5, and they put me in those silver cells in the back. I'll never forget it. And I was by myself in the end. And this sergeant was just so annoyed that I was a Long Island kid, that I was messed up, that I was throwing my life away. He was agitated. And so was I, Joe. So I ran my mouth, and he ran his mouth. And he said to me, really point blank, he goes, look, you could leave this precinct two ways, standing up or in a body bag. He goes, you're coming close to not leaving here. So I ran my mouth. I said, well... You know, you did ask me if I got family, and that family knows probably I've been arrested. Somewhere, there's probably a log that I've been arrested. So how I come out of here is going to be on your shoulders. Look at you. You don't even give a shit at the time. Yeah, I don't care. You're playing tough guy. I'm playing tough guy. So he Tough guy with the cops while you're in, yeah. in custody. That, yeah, that's when you know your life is taking a turn for the worse. You know, it's almost suicide by cop. I yeah, mean, you know, you absolutely. Know, I'm pushing this guy. I'm pushing this guy. Well, <clears throat> here's what happened. There were bigger... There was bigger things at work that were going to save my life, and I didn't know it at the day. At some point, I, this sergeant goes away, and I deal with the real blue coats that I'm used to for the 7-5. And they said, you're going to the 90th precinct. It's not working out for you here. So I didn't know what they were going to do with me. So they brought me to the 90th precinct. And I didn't know that this would change my life because although they didn't charge me with drugs, the Tactical Narcotics Task Force claimed that they found residue on the street on one of the, on one of the envelopes, and they were going to charge me with residue, okay, it, and, 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 and evading the police and a whole list of stuff. So they take me to the 90th precinct, and there's a lieutenant there that reminds me of the lieutenant from The Godfather, the one that winds up getting whacked in the uh, Restaurant. I mean, these are old school. You got to realize, in the '80s, if a lieutenant was on the force for 25 years, he was back for the days in the '60s. So yeah. He's an old school fella. So he says, "Look, man. He goes, 
you got you got a file coming from you. We would happen. I said, look, I don't even know what happened. He goes, look. He goes, I'm gonna settle down. He goes, I'm gonna get a hamburger from McDonald's. He says, I'm gonna call your mother. I said, my mother. He says, yeah, your family needs to know you're here. I said, okay. Um, so they treated me okay, Joe. They did not have that. Now I was in a cell with seven other guys that stunk. I mean, they stunk. Everybody was kicking drugs, including myself. You know, this is probably, you know, the drugs wear out and you need more drugs and you're going through the withdrawals and you're ugly, man. And now... You're um, starting to feel it at that time? I'm starting to feel it and I'm feeling just... I'm feeling... Grouchy. Grouchy and the whole bit. And uh, the, the, the lieutenant says to me, man, he says, you come from a good home in Merrick. I mean, you're not going to rat your parents out that they're crazy. I mean, he says, how does something like this happen? I mean, there was no big signs on billboards back then in the 80s, opioid crisis. This guy looked at me like I was a bum. And what they did, Joe, and I didn't realize what they were doing, whether they were doing it on purpose or not on purpose, I stayed in that cell until I kicked with those guys. And they all went to court, and I didn't go to court. I stayed in that cell. And when I got to court, 72 hours had passed. And, and my charges, there was no charge. I, I, nothing, nothing happened. So what happens after this, Joe, is this. My life is going to change forever, and it's going to never be the same. Well, was there a time that you, so you get out of jail, yes. right? Out of the 72 hours. Yeah. Now, are you back home in Merrick? At the time, I was living on Atlantic Avenue in Freeport. Okay, so now you're in Freeport. Yeah. What was the moment that you actually said to yourself, I can't do this anymore? Like, was it a moment that you were looking in the mirror? Were you driving down, you know, you know, towards on Long Beach? Was it something that you were on the Bell Parkway? What was the moment that really hit you and you said to yourself, hey, listen, I, I can't do this anymore. Joe, I'm off drugs. I get back to the apartment in, in, in Freeport. The girlfriend I had uh, was, was babysitting my dog. I had a pit bull at the time named Kane, and he came with that name from East New York. He came from East New York himself. She says, I'm done, I'm leaving you. I said, okay. So me and the dog were in the apartment. And after a few days, there was no more food. Got down to a, a, a squeezable bottle of salad dressing. I'm drinking salad dressing, dude. I'm drinking salad dressing. That's how bad it is. I got no more job at 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 Malibu on Long, in they Long fired Beach. Me. They fired me. You're done. Gun. They fired me. They, Are you drinking too? Are you also nah, on the? I, you know why drinking? No, no. You were, so nah, you were just yeah, all I, on the drugs. I was on the drugs. So now also you have a dog that you have to feed. Yes. Right. You need food. Yes. So now we're down to no food. So we're down to no food, Joe. And um, this is all going to come to a head real quick here. So after enough time passed, my mother's a dog lover, she sends my father to the Freeport apartment. And let me tell you something, my father knocked on the door like he was the cops. I mean, there's a guy that felt his oats, man. He got up in the morning at six o'clock, he always felt his oats. He banged on that door, I said, man, it sounds like the cops are there, it's my father. I open up that door with my dog, and my father sees the shape I'm in, because I just got done kicking drugs, you know, yeah. quite a week or so. He says, look at you. Look at that, he looked in the apartment. He goes, look at this shambles. And he was getting real, I, he was ready to explode. So I run up th past the Ford. You afraid of your father? Oh yeah, oh yeah, because I had seen him, Joe. Here's the crazy part about my father. When we were growing up, I threw some fireworks in Merrick and some guys in the Corvette yelled at me and my brother. And he ran up the front of the Corvette, jumped in the T-tops 
and punched the drive, took the keys out of ignition so the guy couldn't drive, punched the driver in the, in, the, in, the, in the head, and his head exploded like a pumpkin. And then the whole party that these guys were at came out to fight my father, and he was taking guys out one at a time. So I saw this guy who was about 175 pounds, built like McGregor, um, just knew how to fight. And he learned that probably when he was upstate in Danamora, man. This guy could fight, he could hit, and he was quick. So I knew he, he, he gets me a few shots, I'm, I got a problem. And he at the time was already 62 probably. So I run across the four, four lanes of highway and Atlantic Avenue to get away from him. My dog runs behind me and the dog gets hit by two cars. Oh. Boom, boom. I turn around, my dog is lying lifeless on the ground. Guy's grill is destroyed. From I, I got to tell you, I got to tell you, <clears throat> that is bad news. Yeah. Because your life is already in shambles. The only thing you have. Was my dog. And that dog, the only thing that dog has was you. So the dog, dog gets hit by a car. And tell me about it. Yeah. So you turn around. I turn around. You, do you hear it happening? Did uh, you Joe, know the you dog was, was no, trailing? No, I had no idea, Joe. But the, the force of boom, boom. You know there's a problem. So I turn around, and the dog is out. I run back to the do dog, and my father runs. And I'm looking at the guy. He goes, your dog just ruined my grill, my, my the car, like a Toyota Camry was over Like a here. deer. Like a deer. Yeah. The dog starts to get up. And my father says, don't let him get up. And he takes his Cadillac and pulls it right in the middle of Atlantic Avenue. Um, and we pick up the dog together two guys that could never get along and we put the dog on the back seat oh my heart's breaking Just and the dog it. and the dog and me and my father go to the hospital and my dog survives this my dog survives this broken some ribs got some bleeding sky the dog survived so my parents now are saying look you can kill yourself we're taking ownership of this dog you're not getting the dog back and what are you gonna do you got to do the right thing for the dog so now I got no dog. I got nothing. I go to start my van up. I got hardly any gas. The timing chain goes. I got nothing. So what I do is- You're at I, rock bottom. I'm at rock bottom, okay? I'm You'll never bottom. forget that moment I'll either, never, right? I'll never forget this, Joe. I don't ever go back to that apartment. I have nothing left. So now it gets worse. I go to the Jamaica, I take the Long Island Railroad station because I want to go to East New York. And I get on. You want to go use. I want to go use now. Oh. I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm going to go use. So now, <clears throat> I get on the Long Island Railroad. I got no money. I play hiding from the, the conductor. You're going in the bathroom. When he passes, you get out of the Oh, bathroom. you got no ticket. I got You're no playing ticket. that game. I'm yeah. playing that game. I see those people so, playing that game. So, yeah. now, so now I can play that game. So now I get to the Jamaica train station. Unfortunately, there's a, a sergeant that I grew up with, the NYPD. He sees me. He looks down at me. And I'm wearing like those flip-flops you get with a manicure. You know, those cheap dollar <laughs> flip-flops, you know, or the ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, they're not yeah. sturdy. Pedicure. They're yes. pedicure. Yeah, yes. right, pedicure. Yes. So they're not sturdy enough for like inner city walking. They're not sturdy enough to go around your house. So I'm wearing this, what I'm, this is my footwear. So now <clears throat> he looks at me. He can't believe it. You just can't believe it. So I get away from him, and I'm just focused on getting the train to go to East New York. I'm going to get on the, uh, I believe it's the J train. 
and this is a bad neighborhood at that time of night. This guy, Michael, I know his name to this day. It's, uh, it's something that changed my life right then and there. It's uh, an earth angel came to me, and he looks at me, he stares at me, and I said to myself, that's a peaceful-looking fella. And he had peace about him, and he walked over to me, and he uh, told me his story in about two minutes. I don't know why he told me his story, but he told me he was once homeless, living in a cardboard box in the Bronx. And he had a spiritual awakening, and he got clean and sober. And he's living his life without the use of drugs or alcohol. I said, well, why are you telling me this? He says, you look like you're hurt. You look like you got tombstones in your eyes. I said, do you think I'm going to die? He goes, well, you don't look very good right now. He, I said... I said, yeah, but I've been to detoxes. I've been to lots of detoxes. I've been to rehab. I he goes, you, you haven't found a higher power. He goes, you're still trying to will your way out of this. You can't. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you've got to turn that will that's got you going for drugs to medicate yourself because you're hurting and turn that to a higher power. So I took that information, Joe, and I put it in my ear. I said, what do we do? He goes, well, I was saved upstate New York and Graymore. I said, do they take guys like me? He goes, they take people from jailbirds to people wanting a spiritual awakening and everything in between. Are they open? They're always open. Do you want to write it down? I said, no, I won't forget. I got a memory like an elephant. Garrison, New York, Graymore. So now I got that information, but I'm determined to use. So I get on the J train and I haven't... You know, I don't mean to stop yeah. you real quick, but it shows you how powerful the drugs are. You just had a spiritual awakening. That could have been your angel, God, yes. trying to tell you something, to give you something. That man, on that moment, even the moment that you met the cop, if you didn't see the cop, your friend, with those pedicure sandals on, yeah. you may not have met. Everything was on a track. Everything was on a track, Joe. But you still said, the hell with it. I'm, I still need these drugs. That's how powerful that powerful. is. Powerful. And people that don't realize this that never had a problem with drugs. They get the, you have more of a will to use drugs than you do to eat food. You have more of a will to eat. You will do anything to get out of that pain. So now I'm still going to use drugs tonight. And the night is turning later. And... I get on the train. Now, you don't got a pot to piss in either, right? You got no, no, I don't have a pot to piss in, but I know the drug dealers. And I know if I can get there, that they'll front me some drugs because they know that I'll pay it. Okay? I know I'll get drugs. And you're an actor. And I'm an actor. I will get drugs. If I get to where they are, I will convince somebody to give me what I need. Yeah. So, Joe, here's the problem. I'm weighing good and bad as this J train is moving towards East New York. Kind of reminds me of the Pelham taking one, two, three. This train's moving, and I'm having these conversations. Don't get off. Don't get off. Don't get off. And the sooner I don't get off, it's going into worse neighborhoods. It's traveling past East New York now into Brownsville. And back then, listen, in the 80s, I mean, you could be shot on sight. I mean, I'm a white guy in the hood, okay? And they, somebody doesn't know. My mother used to always say this. If my son has an opportunity to talk, nobody would ever shoot him. Because people can tell that there's nobody I don't like. Mm -hmm. um, I hate the sin, not the sinner. And I don't, I get along with everybody. So now I finally get off the train and I'm in a bad, bad neighborhood. I'm in a neighborhood that I haven't been before, Joe. 
And there's this voice that's pushing me off this damn train. Get off the train. Get off the train. I don't want to do drugs now. But something in me has got me. So I get off the, off, off the train, and I wind up walking through blocks that I'm not familiar with. And I finally get to a place where these burnt-out buildings are. And these guys are behind the building with a 50-gallon drum keeping themselves warm with a fire or some light. And they're shooting up drugs. And this voice tells me, ask them if they, you could join them. Ask them if you could join them. And I start walking towards these guys, Joe. And the force is powerful, man. And I'm a guy, just so you know. I'm not a conspiracy guy. I kind of believe what I see. I want prudent evidence. I want this, I want that. And I hear people say they've had out-of-body experiences or this or that. Well, I have an experience that's going on. It's two things. I got chanting going on in my head to go back there and ask them if I could use drugs. Matter of fact, I'm a neat freak as far as germs. To ask somebody if I could use needles, if I'm going to join them, I had no will left. Something was hijacked me. And I was getting closer to these guys. At the last moment, I start praying, God, please save me. Please save me, Father. Please save me. No different than George Bailey on It's a Wonderful Life when he turned to his higher power. It's my favorite Christmas show. And I start chanting louder and louder, God save me, God save me. And finally I yelled loud enough that these guys turned and looked at me and were horrified. They didn't know who I was. Joe, I turned around and I ran and ran and ran and ran away from these guys. And I wound up in a New York City fire department. Uh, There was a gentleman, a fireman, washing a truck at night. And I came in and I spooked him. And he says, what's going on? I said, I was in the worst neighborhood, man. I said, I had a near-death experience. He goes, do you need, do they need assistance? I said, no, it's okay. I was the problem. So I gave him a run. I said, can I wash my face? So I washed my face. I washed my hands. I'm panting. He said to me after I cleaned, he goes, man, you're, you're a healthy-looking guy, man. He says, you know, there's a test coming up. I said, I, I can't even save myself right now. I wouldn't be any help to you guys. I got a drug problem. And he looked at me, and he was quite fun to look at me and have a drug problem. Because remember, I'm still a stocky guy from lifting these weights. I look like a clean-cut kid. And uh, I finally make the decision right there, Joe. I will never, ever do another drug for the rest of my life. I know you can't project life. You can't project the stock market. Addicts shouldn't project tomorrow. But I made a decision that I would never use another drug again. And what happened? Were you, like, was it when you were washing your hands and looking in the mirror? Was it? I was done, Joe. I was done. I, 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 I saw myself. At the worst. At the worst. And I said, I'm done. And Joe, what happened from there was this. I got back on the train. I went back to Jamaica. I waited till six o'clock in the morning so I could call my father. I was gonna call my father. I had panhandled a couple of dollars. New Yorkers are good people, man. They got the biggest hearts. You know, New Yorkers are unbelievable. At one light, they wanna clobber you, but if you're in need and distress and you're real with them, they'll give you the shirt off their back. Okay. It's the truth. That's the truth. That's what we, you know. What that is the truth about my fellow New Yorkers, and there was honesty, and 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 people wanted to help me. And I called my father. I waited till six o'clock, and I said, and he answered the phone. Like I said to myself, this guy, man, he he starts his morning. Hello, I said, Dad, look, I need your help. I said, I need to I need a ride up to this place called Graymore. Graymore, 
goes, I know that place. He goes, that's for people at the end of their rope. What's wrong with you, son? I said, that's exactly where I'm at. I sa he says, I got to go to work. It's Friday. He says, but I'll come after. He goes, if you stay at that, where are you? The Jamaica train station. What are you doing at the Jamaica train station? It's a long story. Don't ask me. So I wound up going to the Jamaica train station. And um, with that, Joe. Um, you stayed there until he came? I stayed there until he came. And... And I had some incidences there. Uh, the NYPD had to save my butt again. I went into a chicken place, a, a generic KFC, which is really not a gen uh, Yeah, I know he's Yeah, you know. And I had 55 cents in my pocket. Somebody gave me $2, and I had 55 cents left. The food came. I gave the 55 cents. The guy behind the counter was so incensed. He grabbed me and wanted to choke me, and it was on. So I started fighting with him. Then the guy behind the counter was fighting with me and hitting me with a broom. I'm trying to get the guy behind the counter to dunk him in the deep fry where they put the chicken. I got his head close to taking a dunk, and this guy behind me is hitting me with a mop handle and beating on me, and eventually the NYPD shows up. So. What about your father? Did he eventually drive he you to this place? He shows up at six, he shows up late, but he eventually takes me there. And um, the NYPD didn't let them guys testify against me because they were under the influence of alcohol. Oh, great. So they paid for the lunch and let me go. So the, the next thing is my father does come and he takes me up there. Now, here's the good part. Two guys that could never get along. And at the time, he, 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 he's got um, Aaron Neville playing, belting out these beautiful songs. It's a rainy night. I'm scared. But Aaron Neville's playing these beautiful songs. Not my father's taste in music. He's more of a Pavarotti guy. You know, more of Frank Sinatra. I don't know if he bought these and bought Hootie and the Blowfish. That was what was going on back then. And we ride up there. We don't talk much, but we talk about Kane and that he's making a miraculous recovery. And that my father says, that dog, I don't know what he's made of, man, but we're going to give him the best care. Your mother loves that dog. So I'm happy with that. So he drops me off at Graymore. And Joe, I'm in my early 20s, mid-20s. And back then, they deloused me. When you come into this place, it's like a, it's a monastery. But it's not a monastery in which you're going to think that everybody's on their knees praying this and that. I mean, the brothers are, are serious guys. They're Franciscan monks. One guy was, they rumored to be a black belt, Father Bernie. And they put me in a barrack-style uh, like a medium security prison almost, you know. They make me delouse. They give me a Bible, and they give me an Alcoholics Anonymous book. And I start the journey of recovery. Although I might be clean at the time off of drugs, let's say 10, 12 days, that didn't count because now I'm, I'm in recovery. And my life is never going to go back to where it was. Never, ever, ever again. It's going to be a forward motion forward. So, um, how long were you there for? I was there for uh, over a month. I was there, and then they broke the news to me. And I had a second of spiritual awakening there. They gave me everybody gets a job there. I had a job taking care of the cemetery, and my job was to cut the grass around the headstones with, with shears. And they, this was before the days of weed whackers. Mm -hmm. And I looked at all the headstones, man, and I seen that everybody had lived at least 70, 80 years. And I said to myself, I'm never going to live this long unless. I stay in this recovery, and I do. So I was there, uh, you know, for more than a month. From there, they transferred me to the old Pilgrim State CK Post. I put more time in, and eventually I go to a halfway house, and eventually I have some time under my belt. And the beautiful people of Suffolk County, 
they took me in like I was a prodigal son. I mean, I burnt out everybody in Nassau County. Even when I was in recovery, they go like, this guy's an actor. He's an actor. This can't be. He might be acting. So the people in Suffolk were good to me. And they gave me a job. I wound up working and doing demo. And I wound up connecting with some guys that were just in recovery and could tolerate me. You know, it, there's a big difference, even though people don't realize it, there's a big difference from a native Nassau County guy to a Suffolk County guy. You know, a Suffolk County guy could go to other parts in the country and be accepted. The guy in Nassau County, I mean, they, they know he's coming before he's coming. Yeah, I know what you're saying. <laughs> you're right, you're right. I, I agree with you with that, coming from Suffolk County. Yeah. So you eventually make your journey to Nebraska. I do. How does that, how, so here you are. You're in Suffolk County. You're yes. a New York guy. Yes. There's 49 other states that you could possibly have to go to. Yeah. And you wind up moving to Nebraska, and you're a correctional officer on death row. How did that happen? I, I met a girl in, in Suffolk County that was a school teacher, and um, she was quick study on me, and she said, look, I got news for you. I, I, you got a story. I don't know what it is. I could tell you got a story. I think if we're going to get serious, my vision is to move where my parents live in Nebraska. They're, ne they're Nebraska natives. It's a real nice place. It's clean. And I, of course, I knew Johnny Carson. I, I, you know, and I thought the world of, of his type of humor without cursing back when I was a nerdy kid. And I was open to it, Joe. I was open to it. I wasn't close to something it. different. It's something different, right? It, you know, and and out of this riffraff here in New York, yes, yes, same thing on yes. the same streets, yes. doing the same thing. Yes, yeah. So we date for a while. She's hot, good uh, girl. Yeah, she looked like um, Cheryl Crow. She looked okay. like Cheryl Crow. That's pretty good. Yeah. So she she had her own look, and um, you know, the thing is this. I, I, I wasn't about to, the, before, what was the deal breaker for me is this. We, we got real serious dating. We were dating for about a week. And her ex-boyfriend sent her a dozen roses. And Joe, I went to her apartment and she looked at the roses and she looked at me with such happiness. And then she realized I didn't send the roses. Oof, not a good, not a it good wasn't situation. A good so, she took the roses and she threw them in the trash. And I act like nothing was wrong. Now, Joe, I want to tell you this. I had so much street in me that when I used to take showers at her apartment, I used to lather up and keep my head out the shower curtain because I thought somebody was going to come busting in. I got so used to this lifestyle that I wasn't civilized anymore. No, and that's why moving yes. to a place like Nebraska in the middle of the country yeah. with and who goes there? Who, 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 goes does, there? who goes to Nebraska? Who goes There's one thing if you went down to, you know, you're down in Florida. Yes. It's another thing if you want, you want to move to Texas Arizona. or California. Arizona. Something like that. But Nebraska? Nebraska. What part? Lincoln, Nebraska? Yeah, Lincoln, the capital. Okay. So, 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 you, so you get to, tell us about that. You get to I get, I get Lincoln. To, I get to Lincoln. Okay. So I get to Lincoln and I say, you know what? This is okay, man. So the first thing I do is I get a telephone book and I see if there's any Italians so that I can have a friend. So I look and I can't find no Italian. Yeah, good luck. I got, I got no, there's no Italian guys. So I, I figured, so I said to myself, okay, there's no Italian guys. And then I'm meeting guys that eventually will tell me, I waited till summertime to see if you had any tattoos, if I was going to be friendly with you. You know, so, yeah. so, so we, you have some clean cut guys. So I get there and I got all this big vision that maybe I'm going to farm. Maybe I'm going to do something like that. And uh, her father looks at me and says, look, 
I, I really don't think that's the kind of work for you. I don't think Nebraska. I said, well, maybe I'll take a series six, seven. To, no, 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 no. This is this is where what is what's going to happen. Um, there's a test coming out for the Department of Corrections. You were going to become a New York City police officer. We know that story about you. Take the test and see what happens. So I took the test, Joe, and I be, get on the list of getting on uh, to become a, uh, a correctional officer. And um, my sobriety is strong. But here's the problem. I get to Nebraska, and I'm an actor. I don't drink. I don't drug. But I don't tell anybody my past. Yeah, so yeah, you're also living... A lie. A lie. Because they don't know who you really, really are. And the demons are still... Oh. You know, they're still in your head, yes. obviously. Yes. You still have all of that anger and probably... You know, because of your upbringing and your father and yes. everything of that, and the guilt with that dog as well, I'm sure probably plays a lot into it too. And all of it the drugs, the lies, and then here you are. And, but, you know, but now you got a good job. Now I got a good job. Now but, you're finally back to where you were. So you almost have like, it's like a mulligan here. It's a mulligan. So now I'm back to where I, I, I was. So now I get on the Department of Corrections. I do really good. I get on the Corrections Emergency Response Team. And I, and I get the worst job you're going to get initially was work the visiting room because you're between the inmate and his family. In Nebraska, they're crazy in one way. Um, they allow visits. Even if you're maximum security and you have murdered multiple people, you still get your visit with no glass unless you turn out to get put on intensive management, which then would put you between glass and your family member. But that's far and few. We believe in uh, the humanness of you meeting your family. So now I'm in between death row guys, which are not the problem, but a lot of guys from the control unit, they're, they're guys that can't make it in a regular hole. They're too crazy and they go to the control unit. I'm with these guys now. So I wind up making the biggest drug bust in the penitentiary. Um, and I, I got a little ego to say this, the biggest crack cocaine bust. Grandmother bringing it in uh, in her private part in duct tape, uh, the biggest Cucumber. How do you guys figure that out? Well, here's what happened. Um, there was crack coming into the institution. I got a nose for drugs. I know that these inmates are acting different. I can see you that they're see like they're high. They're jonesing for drugs. Okay, I can yeah, tell. yeah. So now the grandmother, I, I figure this out. There's a routine going on. She comes up. She gets past the initial search to come in the institution. She goes to the vending machine. She buys potato chips. Nothing wrong with that. She's going to bring it to the inmate. But she takes her potato chips into the bathroom. That's where the exchange takes place. She takes this thing out of her private, sticks it in the potato chips, closes the potato chips at the top of the bag, and walks in. <sighs> I know what she's going to do. She's going to take the potato chips out at some point in a visit, give it to her grandson. He's going to put it up his you-know-what. I make the bust. I know what's going on. The lieutenant gives me the authority to get a, a woman officer to ask for the potato chip bag. The woman officer does. This is a sturdy... Uh, Nebraska girl, good girl, um, that has no problem asking to see that bag. She pulls this thing out. I was like, wow. And the inmate um, gets up and gets on her back as she tries to run into the visiting room and starts to choke her. Choking his mother? No, the, the correctional oh, officer. correctional officer. Because he wanted the package back. Oh, he wanted it so bad. He wanted it so bad. So, you know, Joe, I mean, you talk about anger. They taught me this thing called a brachial stun. And that's just hitting the side of your neck with your hand. I hit this inmate with a brachial stun. It was equally the same size as me, a 230-pound guy. 
I dropped them on the visiting room floor and then picked them up and, and, and threw them down again. I mean, I made a name for myself that day. And from that day, I mean, I was, a, a, you know, I was by the book and I quickly learned in the academy. See, Joe, what I had over the average guy that went in the academy is I was street hardened. And I knew that if you asked me for a cigarette today, that tomorrow it might be a pack and next week it might be a hacksaw like what happened up in Clinton with that woman that was providing the tools for those two inmates that got mm -hmm. out. So I had my walls really, really up. And I was able to do that. And I, I worked corrections from there. I wound up going into um, death row, working death row. Tell me about that. I want, that's death, really, row, death row is a really interesting place. Well, you, know? to, you haven't, you know, these are people that are going to die, right? Yes. They're on they're on the thing. With the electric chair. No, yeah. Electric chair. Not a, not a needle, the electric chair. The electric chair, which is a horrible way of thinking you're going to die. It's a, it's a pretty, it, and, and then in Nebraska, if you go to YouTube, they got a video showing you them working it and putting the electrodes in water so when the, when the water boils, it's working. I mean, so they, they, it's a crude way to go. These people, when they, when you see these inmates on death row. Yes. What is the difference between an inmate on death row and an inmate, say, when you were there, you know, with the lady bringing in, the, you know, yes. and you confiscating those types or some, you know, at the seven five? What's the difference, you know, uh, 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 of their whole persona? The persona of a death row inmate is completely different. They've accepted in most cases that they're going to die. And if they haven't accepted that they're going to die this way and they feel that they're innocent, they're working to try to get away from that sentence. They're not going to give you any problems. They're not looking to do much of disturbance. They're doing their time. And they've been doing their appeals or and whatever And they're doing their appeals. But I use them as a database of information, and I'm not the only one. They're the inmates you wanted to be around because you would listen to them and you would hear them talk about different things. So I might take an inmate on death row visit, and I might ask an inmate, hey, look, is there anything that you see in your life today that if you go back, you would change? Here's your analyzing. Yeah. Here's your, your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I would ask this to death row inmates, and they said, and it was always the same. They said, life is perfectly balanced. It works out the way it's supposed to. And if I would have kept my own self out of it, it would have worked out the way it was supposed to. Now, of course, you're going to have serial killers that go out and kill for the, the lust of killing. That inmate's probably not going to give me that. That's not something I'm going to get from that. But you have other inmates that had done, you know, guy Charlie Palmer, man. He had stuck up a jewelry store, shot and killed a guy. He was a big man. He was an angry man. He was a dangerous man with his hands. But he was able to give that to me. There was another inmate, Robert Williams, who staff did not want to kill this guy because he had come to such a spiritual awakening on death row. Everyone knew this guy. The governor knew who he was. There wasn't anybody that didn't know who this guy was. And staff liked being around him because his energy was so positive. You know, he killed multiple people. He was one time uh, an active alcoholic addict and it was out of control. But he had, uh, he had Amnesty International, he had Nebraska's against the death penalty come visit him. And some of the kindest people would visit him. And so death row, I felt, was uh, definitely not everybody gets to work death row in life. And for those that don't know about the death penalty, i got to tell you this. If you're very for the death penalty, you always got to ask yourself this question. Um, if you have the capital, you don't get the punishment. 
And that's something that, you know, I thought about early on. What do you mean by that? Are you saying that the people that have money were able to get themselves out yes, of, yes, off of death yes, row? Yes, But yes. if it's the poor indigenous person yes. that's and going to get executed? That's going to get, unless it's a completely high profile case, like obviously Timothy McVeigh, where the public has to have justice. But generally, no. Because here's the thing. With O.J. Simpson, and I pay attention, in 1994, the, the district attorney said, before you know who did this, the person or persons responsible for this double homicide, we will seek the death penalty. Well, one was a celebrity, it was off the table. So I saw that with these guys, that there are other people in the penitentiary that did as bad a criminal murders, but they didn't get the death penalty. Did, did you ever have to walk a inmate to his death? No, they have a special team for that. That's the death squad. Did you ever have to? I was the last visit. I was their visitor. I was so, there, I was there with their visit with their clergy with their with their family. And did you ever have like did you would you ever say something to them? Hey, listen, it was you know it was nice to meet you. And did you ever get attached to someone and say you know what I feel really bad about you know this is going to happen? There's your book. Yeah, there's my book, Joe. Fourteenth uh, and second, we'll get that. There was a, a serial killer, John Jubert. And he was sentenced to die. We electrocuted. He was the last uh, inmate. Uh, Let me see killed. that book for a second. Let me it hold was, it up. He was the last inmate killed by the electric chair in Nebraska. East Fourteenth, one way. Not it's Fourteenth and Second. Is this where you used to uh, pick up? Well, that's where we're gonna, when we get the star. We're going to talk about this. The miracle of the star. Oh, okay, it's the miracle uh, star. Okay. Yeah. So, so now tell me real quick here. You get to, so you get the last visit. So this yeah. is John Jubert. He's a guy that nobody likes him. He's a child killer. He is a person that doesn't talk to staff. He doesn't do nothing. He does his time, but he's got a, a, a reporter and an attorney visiting him regularly. At the end of his life, I'm conducting his visits, and he starts to open up with me, and he starts to ask me about questions. How's New York? Do I miss New York? And this is something this guy would not do with staff. And he looked like an adult boy, okay? He looked like an adult boy, and he wasn't liked. But one of the things, Joe, that happened to me with my spiritual awakening is I can hate the sin, but not the sinner. I did my job. No one could ever say, hey, this guy did this, this, or this. No, I did my job. So I was there when it was time for him to be taken away. And um, he had a cup of coffee in his hand that he had finished, and he, I took the styrofoam cup from him. And I knew I'd never see him again. This was it. And he looked at me, and he wanted me to say something, and I said, this is crazy that you're experiencing this. Yeah. This is this, this is crazy. Go this, ahead. This is it. This is it. This is the last visit he's got in the visiting room. From this point forward, Joe, he's in the hospital. He's going to be showered, shaved. His head will be shaved. His left leg will be shaved. I believe it's the left leg. And he will be put in that chair with a sponge on his head, and he'll be given the jolts of electricity. If people want to know more about that, they can look Electric Chair in Nebraska, YouTube. And this is real, man. This is what movies are made of. Now he looks at me, and I look at him. And for anybody that likes the death penalty, you feel your own mortality. As that clock is ticking for these guys, you also feel it ticking for you. Now, for some reason, he had a few dates with death, and they were not to happen. So, but for some reason, this felt real. It was going to happen. I took the cup from him, and he looked at me, and I said, it was nice knowing you. And I said to myself quickly, no, it wasn't nice knowing you. I said that to myself. I said, I'm not finishing this conversation up like this. This is not me. I got to get real. John, yes. Now you got to realize there's other correctional staff ready to take him away. I mean, there's no more time left. He's going to the hospital now. 
And we put you in a hospital for around the clock so you can't kill yourself. We watch you. So at this point, he looks at me and I said, if you've got a God, you better ask for forgiveness. That's the only way I'm telling you. I know this personally. And he looked at me and he had so much fear. He was trembling. And he was taken away and that was the end. He was last execution with the electric chair. He got a four inch gash on his head. And uh, he knew, he was one of the few inmates that asked the questions that people don't ask. What's gonna happen next? He knew the state was going to kill him. He knew that later that evening he would get an autopsy and he'd be at the funeral home and his family would see him X amount of years, uh, hours later. You know, you know, you really, when you put it like that, how often, often do you really have, unless you kill yourself, that you know, hey, listen, I'm just gonna let you know the next two days we, you're going we're going to kill you yes and then you're going to have your funeral yes it's going to happen at two and four o'clock in the evening yes your family members will be there so if you have anything that you want to write down or you want them to read or it, something yes. this is all right there you know it's crazy it's also bizarre too when you sit you know you say that and it's and it says a lot about the justice system and about people needing to have their redemption because we don't want you killing yourself. No. Because then it's not gonna, then nobody feels right. No. You have to be killed. We, we have to kill you. We have to kill you. We have to make sure that that electric shock goes through you and the people watching and all of that has to take place. It says a lot about human beings in itself too because we're not gonna allow you to take your own death because nobody will feel justified then. No. It's an, <clears throat> it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I'll tell you something, Joe. The correction officers are the unsung heroes, man. We, we give our blue police officers their just merit and on, uh, uh, it's terrible Is that now. it? Is that it, Eric? That is it right there. That is it. That's the chair? That's the chair. That was built by inmates, used by inmates. And uh, they're the unsung heroes, man. And every one of those guys that worked at that squad, they weren't old guys. I know one that's dead already, diseases. I mean... It's it's a stressful stressful line of work to do, yeah. There it is. Uh, yeah, that's that's um, uh, that's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, and um, you never forget it. And you never, you know what? If you get a correctional staff, you know you usually get the wardens. You don't get the staff to talk about this. The warden is the spokesperson for everybody, or the superintendent. Joe, as an inmate's getting close, and I was involved with three executions when I was there. When an inmate gets close to dying, and that that time is set and you're working at an institution, the whole institution gets locked down for 24 hours where you're not moving. The institution doesn't have any bread trucks coming in. Wow, that's a really dark experience it's dark. too because you know death is coming for something. Death, death is, is coming in the building. It's coming in the building and it's a darkness that few people will ever know or ever be around. And I would say this to people that are pro-death penalty, and I'm pro-justice, but justice without mercy is, is not justice. I, 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 that's a quote from, I think, Thomas Jefferson. Something in between has got to work. And here's what I would... What, what, so you're, you're not in favor of the... After being no, there... I've never, I've never been in favor of the death penalty because of, of our governor in New York, Mario Cuomo, who is against the death penalty. Here's the thing. We know that people have been let go of the death penalty through DNA. Even in Nebraska, we had a guy get off the off death row, whether he was innocent or guilty, but he got off. Jeremy Sheets, he was uh, sentenced to die, a young guy. He told me in the yard, he goes, I'm going to get off this death row. 
I don't know if he's innocent or guilty. I don't get into that. So what you're saying is there's too much of a finality to the death penalty. Too much. Too much of finality. And there's other things, who knows, 5, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, there could be some type of new evidence that comes that gets this guy off. Who are we to play God? And let me say this to you. Doing time is probably harder than dying. I mean, when people, listen, the state time is not federal time. You are not having a picnic in the penitentiary, okay? Listen, you're not having a picnic. Nobody's getting away with anything. Um, Real quick, though, let, let me ask you this, though, and I'm, because, you know, I, only for time purposes yeah. here. Just really briefly explain from morning till night what does the inmate go through on death row what's their day like just yeah. real quick so well, we can move lock, on they lock down 23 hours a day locked down lock down 23 hours a day they're in solitary confinement okay they don't have the same privileges as other inmates do they're not walking the yard they have their own little yard okay um and they're in this so they're out of their cell for this little yard for uh, one hour for one hour um Nebraska allowed them out longer than that, but they're still segregated. They still don't have the ability to be with other inmates. So even if it was two hours, two hours. Even, let's just say it's two hours. Now, what happens if this inmate is uh, keeps appealing and he's on death row, say for two, three, four, five years? He's living that life for that long. Longer than that, Joe. We had people on death row for 16, 17, 18 years, twenty years. Carrie Dean Moore just was. He was on death row for. Uh, you could look him up. Carrie Dean Moore probably did. 30 years on death row, 25. And living that life, living solitary that life. confinement, yes. out an hour, two hours, yes. for 30 years. And then kill you. And then kill you. It's double jeopardy. So you have that. So like Mario Cuomo, still his quote, he'd rather let 10 people go that are murderers than kill one innocent person. It's, that's a good it's, quote. So, so the thing is this, I am not against justice, but I will tell you this, it's got to be universal. Okay, I have a problem with our same government letting guys that were contract killers back out after they give a testimony, and they could be back out in the street. Yeah, I know. Yet, good so, point. So if you're going to give contract killers the ability to be free, then there's got to be something in between. I think life in prison, I think that they shouldn't even do it life in prison without parole because that creates a problem. See, what the public doesn't know is the inmate was one time on the street a maniac. Just because he's behind bars doesn't mean he's not hurting people. I think it's always good to keep hope, um, even if he's never going to be paroled. Even if it's a son of Sam, he's never going to get paroled, but he does have a target uh, tentative release date, TRD date, um, because that gives them some hope to better themselves. And sometimes an inmate does get a life on prison to help others. Mm -hmm. There are some inmates that are making your state furniture. There are some inmates that get an education and they help other inmates. There are some inmates that are doing time that spent their whole life not breaking the law in one bad situation. There's some inmates, if you really want to get down to it, that are closer to God because of their prison time yes. than a regular person, say like maybe you and me, who has more of a spiritual connection to an upper power than say, you know, and, and then could be released back. So I understand what you're saying and I, and I, and I get it. But I want to talk to you now, let's get into it now. So you're at the penitentiary, you're yes. working there. Yes. But then you get out of that, right? Or is it that you start then doing a trash, a waste, a trash I, business? I start a trash business. About year, about before my 10 years, I start a trash business. Are you still working? Yes. At, so you're doing two. Is it eventually that you get out of the, the, the correction office? I do, but unfortunately, I keep moving up, Joe, real quick. I wind up, I do so well 
that they give me um, without the college education. They gave me a, a job as a caseworker, and I moved to another institution. So now you're doing that, but you start this waste business, yes. right? And you started doing that because you started doing what? Taking neighbors or friends' waste? I, I wound up I wound up uh, buying an old house, and I start remodeling it, and I take this waste to the landfill. And I realize my neighbors need the same service, and I start taking more and more waste, and this business grows. Wait, what do you mean? So like you t people that can't just put it out on, like I guess it's special different, Special pickup, right? special pickup. Like, like they a refrigerator. Want, a refrigerator, or they wound up gutting their house, or they got roofing debris. They need it brought to the landfill. And I start just doing this landfill work back and forth. By, by yourself? By myself. You got like a pickup truck or something? I start with a pickup truck. But Joe, here's one thing that I learned with corrections. Once I took my focus off moving up, I started moving up. I'm focusing on the trash now. I'm not as intense anymore. I become kind of middle of the road for me. Carefree. Carefree. Yeah. So, Because I got this trash business. And then all of a sudden they say to me, you know, Zeffirelli, your attitude's really good. We want you to work up in Omaha with the kids. Now, when you're working with the kids, these are still murderers. It's still maximum security prison. But I, they shift me up to, to, to work with the kids. But I'm busy with the trash, but I'm nice to the kids. Are you making money with the trash? I'm making money with the trash. But two things are going on. So I do my stunt with the, with the kids. Then they move me back to the penitentiary. I become their, their safety director. I got the keys to the whole prison. 500 employees. All I got is an associate warden between me and the warden. I got my, I, I punched my ticket, man. Yeah, it's like the vice president of the yeah, correction I, I, facility. So, yeah, so I'm living, I'm living Assistant good. Assistant warden. So, so now, but the problem is, I got this position now. I go to work with a tie. I go all over the prison, not locked Which down. Which I'm not really feeling at yeah, all. I'm yeah, not the tie guy yeah, at all. Yeah, but the, though, thing, the thing is, yeah. is Joe, the staff in corrections doesn't get to move around. It's like you ever go to a Lowe's and you ask a guy about something out of his aisle. He can't wait to walk you through the store because he's on this one aisle. Yeah. So I, I wind up with this job, but the trash becomes too big. I gotta leave. I gotta leave corrections. So you leave corrections. I this, leave. this is too big. Are you starting now? Is it when you say it's too big? You're starting off with one pickup truck. One pickup truck to a uh, dump truck. To a dump truck. Now are you starting to employ Yes. Employees? Yeah. And here's what's starting to happen. Because this is crazy. What yeah. you know. what's starting to happen now is this. I, I I go to I go to the least of our brothers first. I go to the city mission. And I tell them at the city mission, I'm gonna start employing everybody that's not working here. And and and, and back then the hourly wage might be eight bucks, ten bucks an hour. I'm paying these guys well. And I clear out the city mission. And these guys, because Lincoln, Nebraska is building. It's got a building boom like you wouldn't believe. I got contracts to clean up drywall going up in hospitals. I've got contracts coming in. I got a lot of stuff going on. So now not only do I clear out the city mission, I start hiring the inmates that are getting paroled. Well, the inmates are making money, and then there's guys in corrections that want work too. So at one point... <clears throat> And, and you know what? <laughs> Wait a this second. Is funny, Wait a man. Second. This is funny. Are shit. you telling me that yeah. at one point, yes. the guy who <laughs> yes. was his correction officer. They're all working together. And now they're all working together yeah. under, what was the name of your company at you the time? You Betcha. You Betcha. And I named it You Betcha because Nebraska liked that You Betcha slogan. So now at this point, now I have a warden now that, that it wasn't a warden back then. He was up there. He was working to, to get extra money. To, so we could put money down, money down in the house. So I got him working. I got these inmates working. And the correctional staff are working with these inmates. And it's the most healing atmosphere. And they could say whatever they want. At the time, they were enjoying it. Because it was good to see humanity. Nobody had titles anymore. Everybody was their own supervisor. Nobody was judging anyone. No. And you guys were all deal. on the same playing field. 
we were all on the same playing field. And one of the things that I want to tell you is this. Why my business was successful is any business that's successful has successful employees. I used to tell them, I'm not your boss. You guys are your own bosses. The customer is our boss. So I had all these guys. I had the, the, the Nebraska Department of Corrections training director. His son was working for me. Oh, wow. He'd say to me, come back and say, hey, you got some, some of these guys are little. I go, but when they're working, there's no drugs, there's no alcohol, and I'm keeping my eyes on them. And look, here's the funny thing, Joe. How do you know this is successful? I can go on my LinkedIn profile and see inmates that work for me that have LinkedIn profiles along with wardens that have LinkedIn profiles. And they're all, all connected. They're all connected. So did we save everybody? No. Did everybody know that we were drug and alcohol free? Yes. When you say that it was successful, well, you, I mean, did it make you rich? Like, how much money are we talking well, about here's, here? Well, here's, like, here's what happened, Joe. Um, you know, rich is figurative, but I made enough money that I did everything I wanted to do. I mean... As you a, eventually sell it, right? You eventually sell it, but I, I, I wanted to because I'm a guy from New York. I'm a Nassau County guy. I wanted to go watch. I wanted the, the, the Mercedes. I wanted the real Mercedes, the AMG. I wanted the Bentley. I wanted all that stuff. You still had that New York well, well, Malibu street in you that you still wanted. You want, you know, you're probably driving a Lincoln back in the day. Now you yeah. want the Cadillac well, here's, today. You want to laugh a little? Here's something. We always hear about Herman Cain was the CEO of Godfather's Pizza. Well, the Godfather founder was Willie Thiessen. He was our neighbor at one point. Okay? So we had really changed zip codes. We had changed a lot of different things and my life was my life was um miserably comfortable because something was gnawing inside me and i didn't know it i worked 100 hours a week joe you're talking about for the waste management yes Plus hours a week. so i but, love but, corrections i was working 100 hours but a week. you sell it though yes i do you sell it do you uh, mind saying how much you sold it I, for i don't want to say that because i think there'll be people that always be mad that they didn't get a bigger part of my you know what's funny about here's the reason why okay it's like a lottery when i had the business going and if you needed a roof Think about I, I would, think I, about what we were talking about. Yes, on Jamaica and Jamaica Station. Yes. Now you're going to tell me you're so humble because you made so much money off of this thing that you didn't even want to talk. That's such a great story. I just want to say that. I just yeah. want to point that out. Yeah. The the road that you traveled. To now <laughs> you're going to sit here and say I don't want to upset people because they're not because I don't want them to think they didn't get a good enough check. No, when I wrote no, it to no, them. that wasn't the problem, Joe. The, the employees were okay because they knew they were getting paid on the way through. I was talking about your family yeah, no, members. No, probably. here's what here was the problem, Joe. When I sold the business, that was all the money I was ever going to get. I got my money; it was done. The problem was that's when people came with their hands out. Charlie, can you do this? Can you do yes. that? Yes. I said to him when I had the business going, and I could have got a break on a roofer, or I could have did this or did that. Everybody had their hand out and got mad. The the employees were okay because when they were working, I had a philosophy. I said, guys, you're building up this business. And eventually, I wasn't like a slob that took a big salary when I was working. I took a small salary to build the business because I knew later on the business would take care of me. So it all happened. So I sold the business. I'm done with the business. And now I got this money and I got nothing to do. You got nothing to do. So now, now I got nothing to do. And it's nice for about three months. And then the smallest things happened in my life that got me pissed off like a fly would get in the house. And that would be enough to ruin my day. You're bored out done. of your face in Lincoln, uh, New York. And well, Lincoln, you know, but, Nebraska. Uh, I'm traveling, yeah. going places. Okay. But th the thing is this. So now it's over with. I take three years off. I take three years off. And I do all the things I think I want to do. I go out to the Hamptons like a Joe. I mean, you know, that, that was a turn back in the 80s, a Joe. I go out to the Hamptons. You know, I, I eat. I, I mean, I, I experience. Eat lobster. I, I, you know, I go out to 75 Maine or whatever. Yeah. You know, when the celebrities are there, not off okay. season. You know, and I'm doing my deal, Okay. 
going to Dune Road, going out to Montauk. And eventually, I, I can't do this anymore. So the, I had a three-year no-compete. So I decided I'm going to get back in the trash business. I go out and buy trucks. I paint them. I get ready. My fiance, by the way, who writes the I want to give her credit on she writes the book that we're going to talk about shortly. She says to me, go, go, do it. She goes, you're going to be bigger this time. I said, honey, I'm going to do this to the next level. And um, the company that bought me out, which was a big company, um, they got a hold of me at Starbucks. We had a meeting. They turned the chairs around. They had napkins. They pulled it out, and they said, look, we bought you out. We don't want to do it again. We're going to give you a job as a chief operations officer. We're going to give you a heck of a nice compensation package. We're going to pay for that nice Mercedes. They don't want. They, they, don't they want, knew. They knew. They knew. Because you, yeah. you could put them out of business. And so instead of competing with you, they, they want you they on the team. They brought me on. And the reason being, Joe, is Nebraskans were okay with me because I didn't take nothing from them. They were, they were very kind people. They're opinionated quietly. I worked for the state. They knew I worked hard. They knew I did a good job there. And I was picking up their trash. They were okay with it. I get them a dumpster anytime they wanted. They were used to normal hours. I bring a dumpster out 2 o'clock in the morning with a spotlight if yeah, I needed one. Yeah, I understand. So they knew that. So I had to work. That's the a, New York in me. That's you. the New York in me. So now I go to work. For, so I tell Jen, I said, look, I'm going to take the job, Jen. I lost my confidence. I got to take the short thing. They explained to me, Jen, that if I put a bunch of money in the trash business and it doesn't work, I might have to go to work for somebody and really need the money down the road. I don't want to invest all the money in the company. She goes, you're taking low-hanging fruit. People love you here for picking up trash. I took the job, Joe. So I didn't know this, but this, my story is going to come to a head. I get a nice office. I get treated really well by this company. A matter of fact, I had become so honest. I had a company credit card, and there was family members that I didn't spend any money on the credit card. The, the CEO called me. He goes, look. In front of the CPA, you're making my sons look bad. You're not spending no money, man. You're not spending any money. Use the credit card. We gave it to you. Well, yeah, and you know, I'm, listen. I, are you at the time now, are you starting to regret that you took the job? Or are you sitting there saying, you know what? This is kind of cush. No, I don't I have to do it. I hate it. You I hate hated it. it. Joe, I, I, was like, I, was like a, I was like a penned in thoroughbred. So I'm on the job, man. I'm, you know. Now you're working. Now I'm working. And, you know, I'm, again, I can't, listen, they would shoot me if they told me they were killing me working. Listen, I could get done in three hours what the average guy takes 10 hours. I did bids. We moved into another state. We expanded. We grew. And, and it was a and lot. And now, but, but you, as it's growing in the back of your mind is this is really my company yes, that's growing. growing. And that's a tough pill to it swallow, too. a tough too. pill to swallow. Yeah. And then people, the customers don't know how it is. Or, you know, Charlie, am I paying you the money? Whatever. So now I'm sitting at my desk on April 13th, 2012. The best part of my life, Joe. I'm 47 years old. I'm comfortable. I don't got a care in the world. Debt free. Debt free. I, zero debt. Zero debt. And I'm about to change my life for the rest of my life. The real guy is going to come out. The imposter, the actor, the guy that never got real with all those people in Nebraska that only knew me as I just am going to get real. I turn on my computer like I did it every day to see what the New York Daily News is doing in Nebraska, the New York Post. Still have that juice, that I New got, York juice that you need, right? I, I love it. You I love, love it. it. You got to see what's I going on. I got to see what's going on. Yeah. Police shoot and kill homeless man's pit bull. I have the video. Let's play it first. Yes. Let's play it and then let's talk with it. So this is what you probably were seeing yes. from it. Eric, you want to pull that one up? Yep. So this is the video. You're watching this. 
This is what you see. Now, really, before we play the video, that man that's laying on the floor, if you want to just, just give us a little play-by-play, who is that man laying on the floor? And there's the dog right to its right. That's Lech Stankowicz, 29-year-old homeless emigrant from Poland, um, had a seizure, brought on by drugs and alcohol, and that is his dog, his homeless dog with him, Star. Can I just, real before we play this, because now, now if you really think about this, right, this is everything in one video, your entire life. life. In one video. In one video, your entire life. That homeless man. Me. You, dead on your ass. Pitbull. No money, Pitbull. I'm getting the chills, and I'm getting the chills seeing you, how you're reacting to this and right now. And these citizens right here, these citizens are the Nassau County and Suffolk County citizens that are rooting for that dog that were rooting for me at one time. My yes, life. and here you are. You're about to see something, and this man also here, right? So, I, I you know, and I, I see this. I, I'm a New York guy. Yeah. I love Manhattan. I see it all the time. You know, when you look at the guys, they, you sit there, and they're poor. They have nothing, but yet they got their dog there. Right, and you know, a lot of times too, you sit there and you're like, "Well, how is he feeding this dog?" And it's almost, "I'll give extra money for the dog." Yes. Right. So there's a lot to it. There's, that's a lot right there going on. So that man there, and that is again, right? Is this here, 14th and second? That's 14th and second. That's why 14th and second. You just put this up on there real quick here. 14th and second. Right here we are, and he has a seizure. Yes. And now people are starting to. You know, what's going on? And the cops, I guess, get called, correct? Yeah, the cops get called. Because his head's basically almost over the curb, and the, the citizens were fearful he's going to get hit by a car. His dog was surrounding the area. He let go of the leash, and the dog is surrounding the area to keep people at bay or just bark. That dog is protecting its yes, owner. And I'm watching this in Nebraska on yeah, August 13th. Let's play it. It's the video that's hard to watch for just about anyone. On August 13, 2012, a pit bull named Star was left scrambling after its owner, a homeless man, suffered a seizure on an East Village sidewalk. Confused, the pit lunged at an officer and was shot in the face. <laughs> Look what they're doing. They're using, uh, pushing the dog with looks like a end of a broomstick. Well, there. it's a, it's it's a, it's a catch pole. And what they're doing is they're prying the dog to see if it's going to jump up and bite. They they they're just making sure that dog is done. Done. Okay. Done. So you so now so take us through it. So you're on here. You are. You, yeah. You're looking up Daily News. You and this pulls up. Explain what's going through your mind. I am gutted, and I don't know, Joe. I don't know why I'm gutted. I don't know why I'm incapacitated, man. I can't even fucking breathe, man. I'm incapacitated, and I watch this video, and then the headlines are police shoot and kill dog. But I, 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 can't, I can't really communicate, so what I do is I run out of my office, and I get the CEO of this company, and he's a practical Midwest guy in his late 60s, and his son, who's the vice president of the company, I pull him in my office, and I have him watch this. And the CEO says, Charlie, I've seen enough of my life. i got to leave. And here's a guy that was a chauffeur for Elvis when he used to come to Lincoln. <laughs> so this guy has saw some stuff in his life. And his son looked at the video and he said, put his hand on my shoulder. He goes, I don't know why you're hurting so bad. 
He goes, the dog died a painful death. I go, no, that dog can't die. You don't understand. That dog has got to live, man. Because I didn't know if that dog died. I felt like I was going to die. I felt like I was that guy in that video. And I felt like that dog was my dog. And my life was being played in front of me. And I had to do something, but I was stuck in Lincoln. Well, and also, and also, I mean, let's call it speed of speed. You kind of didn't help your original dog. No. And you left that dog. I left that dog. And as an adult, you couldn't help that dog, and you had to have some other adults take over that dog. Here is now an adult who can't take care of the dog, and who knows what's going to happen if that dog is alive. So you're going to almost allow a second dog that you're now witnessing to just go into the ether and you have nothing to do with it. So I think that has a lot to do with it, wouldn't you say? I would I would agree with you, Joe. I would right? agree with you, yes. But, I mean, I don't, I don't know the story as you do. Was there reports at that time that the dog was dead? Or yes. why would you think that, that the dog was dead. alive? Well, the headlines are the, do the dog is dead. The NYPD said the dog is dead. I just felt like the dog lived. And here's the thing. I am a guy that only believes what I could see. Prison really made me only believe what I could see. I had a gut feeling the dog was alive. Yeah, because it's weird, right? I yeah. mean, if you really think about it, once you see on the headline, dog's dead, yes. cops say dog's dead, that's the jo end of it. Joe, I felt like the dog lived. I just felt like the dog. Well, here's what I had to do, Joe. I had to be convinced the dog was dead. So what I did was this. Everybody said the dog was dead. The, the, the headlines I have, the dog is dead. I called the New York City Animal Care and Control for my office at, at, at the recycling trash place. And I listened to the prompts and I hit the number four button for New York City ACC, which is the admin. And a lady named Renee answered the phone. And I never lied, Joe. I said, hey, this is Charlie Cifarelli calling from Midlands Recycling out here in Lincoln, Nebraska. I want to know if I could talk to you about the green uh, refuse. <laughs> and she was, uh, she goes, yeah, I, 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 we do, uh, we do recycle, and we uh, are taking stuff out of the waste stream. She was pretty knowledgeable about, you know, going green. And I kept her on the phone for a little bit, and I segued way over to the dog. And I said, hey, and she never asked me why I talked about the dog. I said, they made major news today. Can you tell me about that dog star that was shot? She goes, we get a lot of dogs here, honey. Can you tell me more? I said, this is the actor in you, by the way. Yeah, this is because you started off. You know, on the one two, uh, the recycling, on the and recycling, that, that, and then you got her, you right into your, you know, little web. web and I spun it, and, and technically, she should have. If she was an attorney or she was a cop, she go, wait a minute, how do we go from recycling to, to this the dog? dog? But she did tell me, and she gave me more information who she was supposed to. She did find the dog, and the dog was at the Fifth Avenue vet. So now the dog's alive. The dog is alive. So, so, you, so wait, hold on a second. So now the dog's alive. Yes. But here you are in Nebraska. Yeah. I mean, do, what what's going on in your mind at this time? That you have to get this to uh, this dog. You have to see. I mean, why? Why a dog? Why just this thing that makes, you know, you want to do this? What do you think is Joe, going on? Joe, at the point is, I felt a bigger pull than drugs ever pulled me to make sure this dog is okay and to make sure our owner's okay. I, and I and I and I make a public plea on this. This is what happened. So real quickly, I wind up um, calling up the Fifth Avenue vet, and I do it real nice. The actor and me, they answer the phone. I said, "Hey, I just spoke to Renee. I build on whatever I have. I just spoke to Renee over at the New York City Animal Care and Control. How's Renee doing? Uh, she's doing great. I'm calling on Star. Is Star alive? She is. We can't give you any updates. She's stable. Whatever. They just gave me uh, a boilerplate answer." So now what I do is I go to LinkedIn. I see who I see who the director of uh, NYC ACC is. It's Richard Gentles. I send them a direct connect that I spoke to to um, 
Renee. This is what now? What year is this? This again? is 2012. 2012. He accepts my um, request to join his network. I let him know I spoke to Renee about the Green Deal, this, this, and this. And then he gives me some more of his personal information, his email, and this and that. I got a friend in Nebraska who's got a law degree. He writes some powerful emails that we know Star is alive and that we're going to do everything we can to save her life. We sent it to him. At this point now, um, it starts to come out that the dog is alive. The NYPD then comes back with a spokesperson and says, the dog's outlook is bleak, basically. It's, you could find it in the Daily News. Uh, prognosis is grim, okay? We're not accepting that. Did you see any pictures of the dog at this time? No, no, Nothing? no, no. But what I do is, and it gets picked up by a journalist, uh, this Penny Hilton, Tilton, uh, I write that I'm willing to help the owner. I'm willing to help this man. I'm willing to get him on his feet, give him a job. I'm willing to help him. And Owner of what, though? Star. The guy that was yeah. out, I, he, so he didn't die. No. But he never tried to get the dog back? Well, they, they put too much, they, he signed the dog over to the city of New York because there was just too much. He, he, he declined my offer for help through a homeless group. Okay. They, they declined my help. But he also could not meet the bar that the city put on him. He had to get off drugs and alcohol. Okay, big. That's, that's easier said than done. He needs employment, a place to live, and they'd give him back the dog. Well, he couldn't do it, so he signed the dog over to the city of New York for care, which they took in donations over 10000 to fix Star's health and get her up and rolling again. The city of New York then quietly, the Mayor's Alliance quietly transfers her to a Philadelphia um, dog sanctuary and she gets further treatment further rehab um they rename her and they don't give any more updates why did they so you said you said they sent her over to philly why would they do that why didn't they just keep her in new york there is there something maybe because the new nypd didn't want anything to do with the yes they wanted the story to go away joe and as, as i got deeper into That's the story later like. on the spokesperson because joe gotta realize this it was the first major story of a dog being shot that made global news. I mean, this way, it's in the Daily Mail. I'm on the radio talking about this in the UK. Um, there's articles, it even made China. Uh, there are people that are all over the world. I start a Facebook page from, I always talk about this, people from Vietnam, Syria, you name the places, United Emirate. There are people all over the world that are reaching out for this dog. And long story short, I fight my tail off to become the lawful owner of this dog. And eventually I get adopted, I adopt her. And well, hold on, I wanna, there's a, there's, I, I think Eric that we have, right? His first picture of visiting the dog, right? So let me ask you this though. That's the book, yes. I Am Star. Written by Jen Sanchez, illustrated, I can't pronounce her name. Let me ask you a question though. How was the feeling of, okay, so you locate the dog in Philadelphia, right? Yes. Then what takes place? I, okay. Did they say, yeah, you can come and see the dog? Or here's, was here's, it, here's what it, happened, You Joe. had to jump the rope? Joe, and this is a long journey. I had to find a dog, which took a long time. It took me many months of my life. I, I asked them to post a picture of the dog because they wanted to get this story off the, off the radar. They wanted to go away. I said, look, I got 100,000 followers on Facebook. I'll get on the radio. I need to know if this dog is, uh, is alive and well. So I, they post a picture. From that posting a picture, I see a semi in the background that the, the name on the door was uh, whited out. I run a DOT number on it. It's a Philadelphia company. 
I realize the dog is in Philadelphia. I realize there's no front plates. I know I'm close, Joe. And I keep on calling up shelters. No front plates, meaning no New York. No New York. And I can keep on calling up places eventually, asking, do you have a one-eyed pit bull? And eventually they said yes, and they have a one-eyed pit bull, but it's got a different name. It's Shiloh. It must be a different dog, and I don't believe it is. So I tell the shelter there, <clears throat> the sanctuary, that I'm coming out, and they said, no, you can't. The city of New York owns this dog. Well, I'm going to go to my followers. No, you can't. The dog might get moved and not get, not get the same treatment. I'm given permission by the Mayor's Alliance to visit this dog quietly in December of 2012, four months after she's been shot, approximately. And I visit her. That's the picture right there? Yeah, right there. I'm not allowed to take any photos. I'm not allowed to say that I visited. They took Did the photos. Did you have to f- like sign in? Yes. I, I, had to, I, had to, I had to tell them that I wouldn't do anything, and I didn't, and I let them run it. So they sent this article to People Magazine or whatever they sent it to, to the media, to the uh, East Village Times. They did a story. Star is happily ever after. She's in rehab. Uh, if she ever comes up for adoption, we'll let you know. So I tell my fiance, Jen, I met the dog. Although I didn't take photos, she's doing really well. And um, not only is she doing well, she'll be adopted one day. My case is closed. I can get on. But so, so, so here, so let's uh, recap. And Eric, can you pull up the picture of the dog with the one eye there so we can see it? So you go see the dog, and now you're sitting there saying to yourself, my job here is done. It's done, Joe. I'm done. I, I did. did. I made sure that this yes. dog was still alive, and that's it. So you go back now to Nebraska? Yes, I do. So you go back now to Nebraska, and then- I'm excited to tell Jen this. And what does she say? She looks at me with a straight face. And there she is. Look she at looks, her. She looks oh at me. my God. She looks at me with a straight face, Joe. Look at her right there. Look at that beautiful dog. God, is she beautiful. She looks at me with a straight face and she says, get the dog. I said, what do you mean get the dog? I said, they won't let me have the dog. They said, I'm the last guy they'd let have the dog. I made too much noise with the NYPD. I'm a, a, a trouble starter. Especially now that the dog has taken on this much of a following. She goes, mister, you're going to get that dog. And I said, oh, brother. She goes, you're going to get the dog. And she was my lightning rod behind me and pushed me. And, and Joe, I want to tell this to the, to the audience. I was illiterate. I couldn't write. I couldn't write, Joe. Somehow I graduated high school with not being able to write. Although I could take a test, I can't write an email. I can't write and punctuate. I don't know where the punctuation semicolons go. I don't know where I was in school when this was going on. I can't write. I'm illiterate when it comes to writing. She wrote emails for me. I star and all her fans taught me how to write. I had to write back to these people. I had to learn how to write an email, put it in Grammarly, and see what I was doing wrong to eventually learn how to write. The what guy? What correction officer on death row needs to write anything? Yeah, well, the incident right? reports yeah. were always brief. They used yeah, to say to me, yeah, Joe, Joe, and I'm smart enough to know as an actor, if I wrote too much, they know I'm a dummy. So I used to keep them to one or two sentences, and then my supervisor said, "Really, you seen all this, and that's all you wrote?" They will always be short, short and brief, short and brief. So. We wind up adopting the dog. They, uh, the Mayor's Alliance finally allows me to, to, to adopt a dog. So I have the dog. I come full circle. But I can't tell him. i got to sign all this paperwork that I have. The did dog. you have, you're living in Lincoln. Did I you did. have an apartment? What were you no. doing? Here's what I did, Joe. I bought a 
house specifically for this dog. We had this time, um, we had moved a lot. I was buying a new house every six months to a year. We were doing movitis. You know how people do that with a car? We were moving regularly. Is that the house? We were there. We were there. That was when we were up in Linden Estates by uh, where Willie Thiessen lives. That's up in Omaha. What is that? Is that that's not your house? That's the it? back. That's the backyard of our house. Is that the house? No, that's the neighbors. Okay, wait. D did your house look as big yeah. as that? Yes. Yes. Okay, look at me. Look at yes. me. Look at me. Yes. Wait, wait a second. Yes. Wait a second. Hold yes. on a second. Hold on a second. Yes. From a guy that was living on basically on the street. Yes. You're telling me that you found your way and then eventually, can you put that back, Eric? You eventually found your way and then owned a house like that? Yes. Yes. I was comfortable. That was comfortable. That's yeah. more than comfortable. Yeah, and there's my there's now it now would be a dinosaur. There's my AMG Mercedes there. You'd see the grill. That's when they used to put the the insignias, the uh, emblems on the hood. So so now you have the dog. Yeah. Right. I can't tell anybody I got the dog, Joe. You can't tell anyone no. you have it. How is the dog though? Like, is it receptive to you? Are you? Yeah. You the know, dog is, is the dog is an unusual dog, Joe. She doesn't like food. Uh, like we take it to Whole Foods to get a chicken or a different thing. She don't like any of that. I discover that the dog likes peanut butter drizzled on hard broccoli, crunchy broccoli. That's what the dog likes. The dog loves peanut butter. So the dog is picky with her eating. I think that the bullet must have messed up her taste buds or whatever, and she's very finicky what she eats. So I have the dog. And eventually, a Nebraska guy who's pretty savvy. Now, I got to tell you this. Nebraska people don't talk as much as New Yorkers. There's a saying in Nebraska, keep a few rocks in your pocket. I had an attorney tell that to me. Charlie, you've become the ultimate Nebraska New Yorker. You always got a few rocks in your pocket. You don't throw them all out. And eventually, a guy that owns a big development in Nebraska sees me with this dog and wants to ask me questions. He goes, Charlie, what happened to your dog? Oh, I don't know. I adopted her from back east. He goes, that doesn't seem like you. He's missing an eye. Her skull's messed up. He eventually sees me again, and he says, look, I got to tell you, I'm a kid. I follow a lot on YouTube. I know who your dog is. He goes, but I'm going to ask you, is this the dog from New York City that was shot by the New York City police? Because there's a brown and white dog that's got a million-something hits getting shot on YouTube. I said, Rob, I can't lie. It, it is the dog. And eventually, I said I had enough. This was like September of 2013. I call up the Gothamist and I, or email the Gothamist that I got this dog and all hell breaks loose, Joe. I would never have thought it was that big of a deal in New York. The Gothamist gets a hold of me. PIX News makes it their top story at 2014, Channel 11. Channel 11. I got people coming out of the woodwork writing about this dog and how she came and is the ultimate survivor. And what happened, Joe, with this dog and me? I never had a childhood. And, she is. and what happened would be was I got this dog and I went from a scorekeeping transactional man to a human being, from a human doing to a human being. And I took the dog and for all these years I couldn't go to the meetings I needed to really go to as many AA or NA. You give it an A, I'm an overeat. You give it any A, GA, anything that's got an A because it feels good, smells good, it tastes good, I want more of it. This dog and me do it. We go all over the country and we do meetings and we do stuff and we go back to the monastery that saved my life in 2000 in, in, in 1993 we go back to the monastery they let the dog eat off the same plates we do and i make it into this but what we see is this people are drawn to this dog joe people are drawn to this dog differently than regular dogs i got a lot of dogs 
A dog is dog people like dogs. Yeah, I'm a big dog guy. You're a big dog guy. Yeah, I got two of my own. So what happens with this dog? Jen's grandmother dies from Alzheimer's. So Jen makes something good out of something bad and we do the Alzheimer's awareness and every year we do the walks. I start walking with this dog. And people that have cancer that haven't been public about the diagnosis, the dog starts sitting next to them and won't go by won't leave their side. Not only do they get Alzheimer's, they get cancer too. And we learn that this dog has got the perception to know when somebody's injured. So we start taking this dog to different places. I got in one deal in an Alzheimer's walk, a big gentleman who I now know is a federal judge, said, can I take a picture of your dog? Which wouldn't be out of norm. Then he says, can I hug your dog? I'm going through some stuff right now with a family member with this dreadful disease, which by the way, with Alzheimer's, there's no survivor's walk. And that happens. And then the public starts reaching out to me. I used to cut her hair off to mail to people. This children be going through cancer, some diagnosis. And this dog was the lightning rod of hope. So Joe, the dog did a lot. Uh, the dog did incredible things. We're very proud of the filmmaker. David Hoffman made the uh, documentary, The Luckiest Dog That Ever Lived Came Back to Life to Save Man. This dog really saved my life. If this dog did not come alive, I would be not be the guy that's sitting in front of you, Joe, because I would have been like most people when they get up on their feet and they get prosperous, they forget where they came from. I never forgot where I came from. And, and almost, at, you know, when you were telling that story that you almost started losing your way out of boredom yes. at that time. Yes. Then you started living in regret because you sold this business. Yes. And then this dog came into your life. Yes. And saved you. Saved my life, Joe. Joe, I was not relatable because I was living an actor's life. So I couldn't relate the addict. Would want. Joe, you know who could relate with me? The inmates used to look at me putting the belly chains on them, taking them for travel orders and making sure their cuffs would put the black box on their cuffs so they can't pick it. And they'd look at me and go, man, something tells me that you could have been in my spot. Something tells me. They used to, the inmates knew it. They could smell it. They knew something was there. But Joe, I can never go there. And then when I was in Lincoln, I couldn't go tell people and go to an NA meeting and say, hey, look, you know, this is my life. How can I do that? Yeah. I mean, they take the keys away from me. You take know? the keys away. You, get, you lose your gun business, permits, whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever's going to happen to you. So the dog made it possible for me to go. So what did I do with this dog? I took it back to Suffolk County. I took it to Suffolk County, and I sat in the rooms with people that are suffering. And I let this, this, this dog was a got a lot of fans this dog helped a lot of people is the dog still alive today the dog died this year on february 19th 2021 she had a short illness with cancer transitional oh. cell carcinoma joe was the most bizarre death too she got diagnosed she stopped eating we took her for a sonogram or um and they found this cancer on her and they thought it was going to be it for her she got back up off the couch after a week, and I did everything I could with her. I took her back to 14th and 2nd, name of my book. I took her to Freedom Tower. Uh, the police hugged her, everybody in there you could imagine, and we lived our life for a number of months. And then on February 19th, I was going to give her a bath. And uh, I picked her up, and Jen was with me, I was going to take her upstairs. We got the sunken in bathtub to give her a, a, a pool-like bath. And she started to deep breathe, deep breathe, deep breathe about three times, gasped, and she died. I laid her down, 
and it looked very sad. She looked like she was contorted, like maybe she had a heart attack. And I laid next to her for a half an hour, crying uncontrollably. And I got first aid. I know what to check for a pulse. I trained in CPR. There was nothing left. She was gone. So I, I brought her up to the living room, and I told my fiance, I said, Jen, take a picture of me and Star. She goes, she looks terrible, honey. I said, no, this is for just me. And she let a bunch of air out of her lungs, which startled me a little bit. And a smile came to her face, and I have that picture. And now she's dead, Joe, and we have the worst snowstorm in Pennsylvania on February 19th. I, I got a Toyota TRD Pro. I mean, this thing's supposed to get off of anything. It's supposed to be able to... I can't get off my mountain. I can't get off. I keep sliding off. And I put it in the bank. And I got my dead dog with me because I'm taking her back to Philadelphia that saved her life with the... And we're going to cremate her, but I can't take her. So now I got my dead dog in my arms. I'm trying to get back up the mountain. I carry her upstairs. I bring her back in the house. And a, a week, I had my dog that passed away for a week. And Joe... I mean, what do you do? I mean, I mean, this is this is something that the average home dog owner never, pet dog parent, dog parent never deals with. I had my deceased dog with me for a week, so at nighttime I put her on a bed, but during the day I had her in the backyard, right by my back sliding door, to keep her cool. And this went on for a week. I mean, because you couldn't do anything. Get I couldn't do nothing. I just couldn't do nothing. No, you, you can't ask people yeah. to come to work. So the thing was this, Joe, which is really odd. The temperatures really uh, went up. They don't drop. They went up. They went up. They got mildly warm um, for that time of year. So when I get her to Philadelphia, they put her on a stretcher and wheeled her in. No blanket over her head, like she was a celebrity. And they give it a care that you can't believe. And the vet tech, or the doctor, I think it was, pokes her and feels her. She's not frozen. She's soft. She's pliable. She's, she's room temperature. And couldn't believe she didn't smell. I mean, we had her in the, for an, a week. And oh, we had her for a two-hour ride in the, in the vehicle to go from where we lived to. So she, um, she, uh, she left this planet on her terms. And it was quick. She never let nobody put a needle in her arm. She left when she was ready to leave. So this all happens, Joe. Um, I write a book. I write a book that got edits. Every book needs edits. But I wrote a book that was manageable, 14th and 2nd, which will be coming out soon. But more importantly, Joe. Charlie Cifarelli, 14th yeah, and 2nd. 14th and 2nd, which will give a reader. It won't be that boring. And that will be, if you suffer from addiction, that will be a blueprint on how you could be saved one day at a time. Um, so, Jen decides to write this book. I am star. I am star. So, how is this profound? Because it's becoming pretty profound. See, Jen, Jen's a recruiter by nature. That's what she does for a living. Your fiance. Yes. And Joe, pay attention to detail. She'll miss nothing. She saw the injuries that Star had, and she always kept her head up. You know, you get a dog from a shelter that's been abused or had something happen to it. A dog's a little shy. Star never lost her prominence. She never carried her head anything but up. And early on, Joe, there's always been, you know, there's always somebody that's got to say the wrong thing. Oh, what happened to your dog? Why she got one eye? Now, here's the crazy thing about Star. Because of me and Star and our energy, you know, there are people out there that dislike pit bulls because they read the media reports. Yeah, of course. And the media sells stories on pit bulls because it doesn't matter if a German Shepherd or 
uh, a Great Dane bites, it's just a dog. But if a pit bull bites, it bites. I've done the statistics. Yes, they're powerful dogs. But what happens to these poor people that have been victims to these dogs is they can say, well, the dog was never mistreated, but they never know where the dog came from with the bloodline or if it was abused or what occurred. If you get the dog from a shelter, don't know what's happening, but I don't want to get into all that. But what I want to say is this. I'm a star covers the fact that star looks different, had injuries, and children were gravitated towards this. It's great. That's great. There is a time where a mother had two children that were deaf and mute, and she said, no, sir, they're not going to understand you. I said, wait a second. It's not me. Hold on a second. I was at a street fair. I said, I got, I got the person that the, dog, the children will understand. And Star came out, and they were using hand signals to talk to Star. And Star sat down and looked at them and was there with a big smile. That's what Star did. Star reached people. Now, the University of Nebraska, no, Westland, a uh, professor reached out to me. He says, I want that dog in my class without a, without a, without a um, leash because you're going to teach my journalism class what real journalism looks like. You're going to teach them what happens when you jump the gun and you don't put the facts down. This dog is living proof of that. So I taught a journalism class. You've got to realize, Joe, this dog has brought me to college. She's taught me how to write. She's taught me that I'm a human being, not a human doing. And she taught me never, never, although we all have some sort of prejudices because we like certain foods or we don't like certain foods based on the way they look, this dog taught me that, you know what, I may try something and like it. And I may judge somebody that may be able to help other people or help me in my own shortcomings. This dog helped me. So the dog has come full circle in my life and has made me a human being. And um, my job now is to take this message and to carry it forward and know that there is an audience out there of people that did not have the perfect set of skills to make it in this life. Neither did I. And I could help you from the teachings I learned from this dog. Last question that I have for you and, and, and your story is just completely amazing to me, honestly. Your whole life journey is amazing to me. How is your life now without the dog? I mean, you had the dog, the dog changed your life. Everything you said, I believe, and I, I, and I agree with. Yes. But now you have that absence, you have that, that vacancy. Talk to me about your life now since then. Joe, when that dog left, it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life, man. And um, I didn't pick up the phone for six, seven months to anybody. And I didn't know how going forward would look. I am not a suicidal guy, but I'm a guy that is smart enough to know that people can die from a broken heart. And I didn't talk to nobody. So an earth angel reached out, somebody reached out and they called me to tell me there was a mental health retreat for law enforcement in New Jersey. And this person said to me, look, I know I haven't heard from you. I know you're not returning calls but I want you to go to this law enforcement retreat in New Jersey. And that man is Michael Dowd, former police officer. Son of a bitch. So, full circle. Full circle. So, Michael Dowd. So Michael Dowd reached out to me, and yet the New York City police officer, the sergeant that is a guy that don't have his record, 
He couldn't reach me like this guy reached me, although he did. Although this guy called routinely. He was the only person. Actually, I said I didn't answer my phone for nobody. He was the only person. My friend Ted was the only person I answered the phone for. But he's limited because he's not an addict, because he's not uh, got the mindset. Dowd brought me to this retreat, and I heard officers that were going through similar things that I was going through and had all this pain packed in me from years of abuse, drug abuse, corrections, death row, youth facilities, and then having to see my dog dead and have her for a week. And then, of course, my father dying just before I found out from his past. I would have never known any of this until I went to newspapers.com because I was writing the book for Star and I wanted everything to be factual and there were certain things I needed for dates and this and that. And I found his criminal history in the Daily News to the exact part. So this dog, she gave me everything. The New York City police sent me a guardian angel in the form of Michael Dowd. And um, here I am today in front of you, Joe. I got to tell you, I, this, this story is unbelievable. I'm so glad that I met you. I'm so glad that you were able to come on here and, and say, you know, tell the story that you did. It's unbelievable how things, you know, how it, you know, progressed in your life. And again, how Mike Dowd at the end here, yeah. where everybody, you know, when we were talking about it, how he's, you know, a bad cop and terrible person. Some people, you know, but Mike Dowd has a similar story, you know, going down into the gutter, going down rock bottom, coming out. Yeah. And seeing someone like yourself who needed something. And it just goes to show you, just like you said, man, you know, judging people, people being there for you, having certain signs in your life. I mean, think about the signs that you had. Angels in probably in your life. Yes. From the point that you were, when you were going to go with those people that were shooting up in... In East New York, East New York yes. under the fire, and yes. God, you're telling that fireman who saw you, thank God he was there washing that car, the cop that was there when you came off, all of these signs, all of these things. And then it's not a human being that saves you. It's a dog. It's a dog. And and Joe, the cop that shot Star, in a, in a, and he didn't shoot her again. If you look at the video, he should have shot her again and put her out of her misery. That dog, that, that, that intersection of 14th and 2nd, my life was going to be changed forever. God was not going to let me get out of this life, Joe, with just being a guy that ate six small meals a day and had a good credit score, perfect credit score. He wasn't going to let me do that. He wasn't going to let me do that. When he's got his finger on you to do greater things, you're going to do greater things. And there was no way. That, and when this dog died, I was going to go into obscurity and... God said, I'm going to get somebody to reach this guy. And you know what's crazy about this whole thing is Jen didn't know, my fiance didn't know how much pain was packed in me. So when Dowd wanted me to go to a, um, a mental health retreat, she's like, honey, why would you need that? Why would I need that? My goodness. I had, you know how many inmate stories I got packed in me? You know how many people had hard luck stories? You know how many people were law abiding and they snap one day? Or their wife was cheating on them, and they shoot the, attack, the, the the cheater or whatever happened. Listen, whether you like the story, don't like the story, you heard all this. Then you got a guy on death row, Ryan, talking about how he skinned people alive. I mean, come on. I'm a human being, a sponge. And I wasn't going to church. I wasn't doing therapy. I wasn't doing anything but absorbing all this poison for all these years. And guess what? 
you, you, you yell at water, it takes a different shape. You sing to water, it takes a different shape. And I am mostly water. I love it. Okay. Hey, listen, so real quick, though. What are you doing now? You're living here on Long Island? No, um, we got a big place in Pennsylvania. Big place, huh? Yeah. Well, big we need it with the dogs. You. We need it, we need it, we need it, we need it with yeah, the dogs. Yeah, we need yeah, yeah, big, dog. of course. We need a 45-pound pit bull. You need that 45 well, acres. We, we, need to, we need to land, and uh, I got a host of injuries growing up, and I do no pain pills, I do no surgeries. So luckily, by the grace of God, I got a saltwater pool that I could soak in, and it's November. I even got into it in November, and I got to do the cold showers because I look for the solution. Everything I can do, Joe. Yeah. That, and I'm not advocating for anybody. Are you working else. right now, or are you just living? I, I'm just living right now. I'm not. I'm. I'm just living, and I'm just figuring out the next part of my life and trying to get this message to people to try to move. High tide moves all boats. High tide rises all boats. And that's what's necessary. I believe a guy like me could always make a living if I need to. Um, I think that I got one shot to help people. And right now, when my brain is clear, my mind is focused, it is time to get that job done. How do people reach out to you? How would they connect with you on Facebook, they Twitter? Could, they could reach out to me on Facebook, uh, Charlie Cifarelli, Instagram. They could reach out to me on LinkedIn, at Charlie Cifarelli. Spell your last name for C people. C-I-F-A-R-E-L-L-I. -I -I -E if they want more, they could watch the video, The Luckiest Dog That Ever Lived Came Back to Life at the end of the YouTube video. My email's on there. Um, and here, here's a story. And you know what? Um, you know, it's YouTube. It's got hundred some 156,000 views. I, I think I got 24 thumbs down. That's pretty good. That's the people that didn't watch the video. Yeah, it's probably the people who didn't watch the <laughs> they video. Probably, they probably watched the first 30 seconds. The first 30 to 90 seconds are tough, but it's a miracle that needs to be watched. Last, last question. Yes. Do you still have dogs now to this yes, day? Yes, I do. I got a half dozen dogs. Rescued. Do any of those dogs relate? How you Are you close to them as you were with Star? Uh, no, no. I, I, can't, I, I love them all equally. Um, they're not just dogs. They're all rescue dogs that had 24 hours or less to live. Uh, Star was uh, a dog. One of a kind. One of a kind. And we, we, we don't hold every dog up to Star. Listen, she's in Wikipedia, Star the dog. There are other dogs in there. There is Lassie and Rin Tin Tin, so there's Star too. Well, I got to tell you this. You know, Star is one of a kind, but I think Charlie Cifarelli, you're one of a kind too. Thank you. And I want to thank you. Thank you, Joe. Hey, it was a great... Great honor to have you on here. All right, so listen, let's wrap it up here. If you get a chance, go on to, and this will be on YouTube. Follow us on YouTube at The Joe Cozo, and you can listen and watch all of our shows at thejoecozoshow.com. And again, Charlie Sferrelli, it was an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, but that wraps it up for another edition of The Joe Cozo Show. <laughs>